All right, this is Melissa, the insurance exam queen, and we have a three-hour property and casualty class, so let's go ahead and get started. All right, so let's just talk about insurance for a minute. So what is, what is, what is insurance and why, why do we get it? So in life, we have these risks. You have the risk of crashing your car. You have the risk of your house burning down. You have the risk of getting sick. You have the risk of, of dying and leaving your family with no money. We have a lot of risks in life. And there's many ways that we can handle, you know, our risk. You can, um, in fact, you are a star at handling risk. You can share the risk with someone else. Like if you get married, the two of you are now sharing the risk of paying the bills, of having a house, of raising children. You can avoid the risk. You could say, you know what? I'm not even going to buy a car so I don't crash it. I'm not going to leave the house so I don't get sick. I'm not gonna get on an airplane so that it won't crash. You, um, that would be avoiding the risk, but avoiding is almost impossible. Um, you could retain the risk, which means that you keep it. So retaining means I keep the risk and I deal with it myself. So if my car is destroyed and I have no insurance, I would pay for it myself. My house burns out, I pay for it myself. So retention is keeping the risk. Um, or you could uh, reduce the risk. You could try to do things that make, make the risk less risky. So if I'm always cleaning my gutters, I'm keeping my car maintained, um, whatever, or, or I'm wearing a mask, I'm washing my hands, I'm exercising so that I stay healthy, you can reduce the chance of a risk. But the best way of handling risk is to transfer it. So again, I'm kind of... Um, it should be on the document. Oh, wait, I'm on the wrong screen. Um, I don't think I have star on this page, but um, star is the way, oh, there it is right there, handling risk. So see how it says handling risk, sharing, transfer, avoidance, retention, reduction. You want to know I am a star at handling risk. I can share the risk. I could transfer the risk, which we haven't talked about yet. I could avoid it. I could reduce it. I can retain it. You want to remember those, share, transfer, avoid, retain, reduction. I am a star at handling risk. All the other ones, sharing, avoidance, retention, and reduction um, are cool, but the very best one is to actually transfer the risk. How amazing is that? That the risk of my house burning down, the risk of crashing my car, I can transfer it. I can give it away to someone else. And that's what insurance is. Insurance is the transfer of risk. The risk of me having to pay for my car after it's destroyed in an accident, I have given that to the insurance company. They have it, they own it, it's not my problem. That's what transfer is, that's what insurance is. So insurance is the transfer of risk. Insurance is the transfer of risk. And anything that I'm repeating is definitely a testable point and something that I really want you to memorize. So insurance is the transfer of risk. Now, if you notice on the screen, it says, Insurance is the trance of, of risk of loss. Now they may trick you on the exam. The answer is risk. The very best answer, what is insurance or, or what is, uh, yeah, what is insurance? Transfer of risk, very best answer. But if risk is not available, you will choose loss as your second option because insurance is the transfer of risk of loss. So insurance is a transfer of risk, of loss. And if they have a multiple choice, every test question will be multiple choice. But if they say, what is insurance? 
and or, or they'll say insurance is a transfer of and they'll have four options if one of them is risk choose it that's the right answer if one of them is not risk but one of them is loss you're going to choose loss so loss is the second best answer and the exam actually kind of does it a lot they will have a very good answer and then another answer that's kind of good so when you take the exam, you're gonna see four questions, two of them you can, or four answer options, two of them you can pretty much delete right away. And then the other two um, are choosing between the best answer and another answer. So I will always try and focus and help you know what is the best possible answer when you're on the exam. So insurance is a transfer of risk of loss. Choose risk first if risk is available, only choose loss if risk is not available. Then you need to know the definition of risk. So we talked about the risk is the car crashing, the house burning down, whatever. But you also want to know the definition, which is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring. So risk is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring. And I am transferring that to the insurance company and I'm letting them handle it. I'm letting them take care of the bill in all of that. Now, when it comes to handling risk, I am a star at handling risk. The, re the retention one is where you're keeping the risk, retaining the risk. With retention, you can either fully keep it and you be basically become self-insured. So you're insuring yourself, you're handling all the risk yourself, but retention can also be a little bit. And what I mean with that is that retention could be the deductible. So for many of us, if you have a car insurance policy, if you crash your car and it's destroyed, you're gonna to have to pay your deductible, which is the first 500 or $1,000 of the risk. You retained $500 of the risk via your deductible. So when you think about the word retention, also think about deductible, because even on the umbrella policy, the deductible on an umbrella policy is called a SIR, self-insured retention. You are self-insuring at least a little bit. So retention could be all of it or some of it. If it's some of it, it's the deductible, that a retention is a deductible. So when you buy insurance, you're transferring the risk. And if the risk were to occur, you pay the deductible when it happens, they take care of the rest up to the limit. And risk is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring. Now, they're not going to cover every single risk. Do, are they going to cover the risk of me going to Las Vegas and losing all my money? No, they will not. There are only certain risks that insurance companies are willing to take. And these risks are known as pure risks. So pure risks are situations where either nothing happens or a bad thing happens. I either crash my car or I don't. I either get sick or I don't. My house either burns down or it doesn't. That is a pure risk. Either loss or nothing is the um, pure risk, okay? And only a pure risk is insurable. You cannot get insurance on something unless it is known as a pure risk, either loss or nothing, no chance of gain. They would like to define that one a few different ways. You, can, you wanna be prepared for saying that a pure risk is loss or nothing. And you wanna be prepared to say that a pure risk is no chance of gain. They definitely can word it both ways or the same way. I, I mean, as in you could take one exam and one question will be, what is a pure risk, loss or nothing? 
And then five questions later, it'll say, what is a peer risk? And you're choosing no chance of gain. That's what I mean by they're gonna use both definitions. And again, only pure risks are insurable. I cannot get insurance on a risk unless it's known as a pure risk, loss or nothing, no chance of gain. And with the no chance of gain, what we're saying is you're not gonna make money. Your house either burns down or it doesn't. There's no making money off of your house, which ties into the other type of risk known as speculative risk. A speculative risk is a lose or gain. I might lose, but I might win. That is a speculative risk. And that one is not insurable. Insurance companies will not cover you. If, if you were a speculative risk would be like covering going to Vegas and gambling. So if you say, well, I'm going to go to Las Vegas and I've got a thousand dollars I'm going to spend on gambling, but in case I lose it, I'm going to buy insurance so that I'll always get my thousand dollars back. Insurance companies don't do that. Like, cause if you win, you win. And if you lose, they pay out. You don't lost, you never lost anything. That's not a real, that's, that's, they can't cover that. So speculative is lose or gain, lose or win. And it is not insurable. And if they ask about speculative risk outside of the definition of lose or win, they will ask what is speculative risk like? And it's like gambling. So it's not even like it is, like that's one of the speculative risks. Now there's other speculative risks, but the main thing that they talk about is gambling. So speculative is like gambling. You could lose, you could win, and you cannot get insurance on a speculative risk. Okay, and then again, make sure you're asking questions if you have any questions. Um, you can either put them in the chat. Oh, hi, Angela, hello. I'm in here as you, by the way, it was the Calendly was linked to your Zoom. I only realized that at the last minute. I was like, oh my God, I got to log in as Angela. Okay, anyway. Um, okay, so now, uh, so, wait, so, so we talked about insurance is a transfer of risk. We talked about risk is the uncertainty or chance of loss occurring. We talked about the two types of risk, which is the pure risk, loss or nothing, no chance of gain. And then we talked about speculative, which is lose or win, lose or gain. It's like gambling and they will not insure it. And of course, we talked about handling risk that you can either share it, you can transfer it, you can avoid it, you can reduce it, and you can retain it. And it's more important to know STAR and the acronym more than it is to know the exact definition of sharing the exact definition of avoidance, the exact definition of reduction. You don't need to know that. Because most of the time the question will be, all of the following are ways to handle risk except. And so you end up looking for the wrong answer because it, you're, you, well, it's sharing, transfer, avoidance, retention, reduction. And if it ain't one of those, that's my correct answer with the except questions. Okay, now uh, moving on to the next section, we got exposure here. Um, exposure is, and it's not on every exam. If you haven't seen the word exposure in your studies, that's fine. But exposure is just basically asking how risky are you? Because if insurance is the transfer of risk, the insurance company is going to take that risk from us. They need to know how much risk and how risky is it? If you are a bad driver, if you have multiple speeding um, tickets and you have accidents, you are way riskier than someone who has a good clean driving record. So someone who is more risky will pay more premium than someone who is less risky and exposure is simply the way to figure that out. 
So exposure is basically just asking how risky are you? And depending upon that, that will determine your premium. So insurance is a transfer of risk. And the more risk I have, the riskier I am, the higher my premium will be. Now, um, then we have hazards. Now, a lot of people will confuse risks and hazards. Risk is the uncertainty of loss. Hazard increases the chance of a loss. So a risk is the uncertainty of a loss. Hazard increases the chance of a loss. One more time. Risk is the uncertainty of a loss. Hazard increases the chance of a loss, okay? So a hazard makes a risk riskier. That's basically, and that's why people get them confused because hazards and risk are, you know, they sound similar. This is being recorded, yes. And every single person who bought a ticket will get a copy of that recording. And I will also include the links of the notes. And I will be emailing this out within 24 to 48 hours. It just depends on how quickly the computer converts the Zoom meeting, um, but at the latest about 48 hours to get a copy of this recording. And then if you already have my all access package, this recording will be added to as well, um, but you have the opportunity to be live. So make sure you use that ability. Uh, Barb, did you have a question? I do. So you talking about the hazards and the exposures made me remember a question that's on the Michigan exam. Good. So the question is, you run off the road and you're while you're driving and you hit a tree. Is hitting the tree um, a peril, exposure, or a hazard? And I can't remember the fourth one. <laughs> wait, wait, it could be peril uh, the way that they're saying it. So hitting, well, apparel is the thing that happens, like the accident, like crashing. Um, but we, when we think about perils, we think of fire, lightning, wind, hail, stuff like that. But that I would choose peril for that one because the, you, you crashed your car. That's what is going to cause you to file a claim. And the peril is the thing that happens, the fire, the lightning, the wind, the crash that makes you need to file a claim. So in that instance, if they say you're driving on the road, um, now it, it's weird because it, is it raining in the question? No. And the question is, I think the exact word is what is the act of hitting the tree? And then it says, is it a peril? Is it a hazard or is it an exposure? I think I put peril. <laughs> I would choose peril for that one. Um, okay. I'm, I'm feeling weird about it, but because <laughs> that's too. <laughs> Not a common question. Um, I have seen that a few times. Some people will get a question about the tires. Um, and tires are not covered by insurance. They're more like a wear and tear kind of thing. Like, like um, insurance doesn't pay for a broken down car. C tires kind of are in this weird spot where they're not really covered by insurance in that way. So sometimes you get a weird question like that. Um, but I would go with peril for that one with hitting the tree. Thank you, Barb. And again, if anybody else has a question, that they've seen from the exam, share it. So that way we, you know, can help everybody. <clears throat> Listen, quick question to clarification, since you mentioned the tires. So since the tires can't be covered, then does, the, does that mean it can't be a hazard? The tires can be a hazard. If you have bald tires. No, it can. Okay, just, it can be. Okay, just want to make sure. Even though if it's covered or not under insurance, it still can be a hazard. 
Yeah, hazards is anything that increases the chance of a risk. And you, you can have a risk that's also not covered. Like um, if you don't have the coverage on your policy, you don't have that, but that could still happen to you, right? Like something could happen to you even though it's not covered. So, and, and perils, you can have, apparel doesn't mean it is covered. Apparel just means it's a thing that can happen to you and your policy may or may not cover that peril. That makes sense. Okay. And we're about to talk about peril here in a minute. Um, well, let's talk about peril. That's fine. So peril is the cause of loss. It's the reason that you're filing a claim. It's the event or the activity that occurs that um, causes you to file a claim. So it's the fire, the lightning, the wind, the hail. It's the wharves. It's the um, BBB ice golf. Those are all perils. And your policy may or may not cover every single peril, okay? But peril is the cause of loss. They always, in the general insurance chapter, when they talk about perils, they almost always go with fire and hail. Those are the two main perils they love to talk about from the general insurance chapter. But since you guys are taking the PNC, you're gonna be learning many perils, way more than life and health. So if any of you plan to take the life and health exam later or as well, PNC is the harder one, just so you know. So if you're heading into life and health, so much easier. I actually have way more PNC customers than I have life and health. Like it, PNC is 80% of my customer base, only 20% is life and health according to my YouTube stats. So that also shows you how difficult the PNC exam is. All right, I think I saw another question in there. Um, wet leaves on the sidewalk, is this a risk, a hazard, a peril? I would go with a hazard on that one because the, the peril would have to be an act, the peril would be slipping on the leaves. The peril would be the actual thing that happens. But wet leaves are, are it's a, like, that's like kind of like a tree branch sticking out of the sidewalk. It's possible that you can interact with it and be in a riskier situation. So I would go with um, wet leaves on the sidewalk. I would go with hazard on that one. Okay, so peril is the cause of loss like fire or hail. And then loss is the reduction or disappearance of value. That's how they love to talk about loss, the reduction or disappearance of value. So you have a risk, you transfer the risk to the insurance company, you have a peril happen, like your house burning down fire, You that now your house has a loss. It has reduced in value. Value has disappeared from the house because it burned away. It's gone. And that's what you file the claim for is, the, the loss, that's why the transfer of risk or the, the insurance is known as the transfer of risk of loss. I'm not actually transferring the fire to them. They can't stop me from getting sick, but they can pay the bill for it. So when we say we're transferring risk to the insurance company, we're transferring the risk of having to pay the bill and we let them pay the bill. And the bill is the loss. What did I lose that I now have to fix? So insurance is a transfer of risk of loss, loss being that reduction or disappearance of value, and peril is the cause of loss, the reason why I'm filing a claim. All right, so now let's get into, well, we kind of already did hazards a little bit, but so hazards is the increase, um, increase the chance of loss. So a hazard will increase the chance of a loss. It will increase the chance of the risk happening. And then, then you, so you want to know that definition, a hazard increases the chance of a loss. 
Then you need to know the three types of perils. There is a or hazard, sorry, physical, moral, and morale. Physical, moral, and morale. A physical hazard is, is something that you can see and touch. It's material, it's structural. I can see it, I can touch it. That is a physical um, hazard. Or it's like um, it's like a sidewalk that or a stairwell, and you could see that the railing is rickety, that the railing is shaky, that it's not very sturdy. That is a physical hazard. A rickety rail along a staircase is a physical hazard. Gas cans next to rags in the garage, that is a physical hazard that can start a fire. So physical hazards are things that you can see and touch, and the fancy way that they describe that is material and structural. So if- Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Okay, so this is a question I've asked previously and it's kind of off subject of, of what you're talking about at the moment, but so I'm doing the Pearson View test. I've signed up for the personal lines, but does that also include all the property and casualty testing as yes. well? Yes, so just real quick, pr property and casualty is home, dwelling, auto, commercial. Personal lines is home, dwelling, and auto. So PNC versus personal lines is just including commercial. Personal lines doesn't have anything commercial on it, but what's really cool is the PNC exam, if you only study personal lines for the PNC exam, you're able to pass it. That's all I focus on is actually teaching personal lines because that's really all you need to be able to even pass the PNC exam. Okay. Um, okay, so I have this question. Um, a man buys an engagement ring for his fiance. All of the following have an insurable risk except. So insurable risk, which I don't think we got to yet in our text, but we will hear it somewhere along here. An insurable risk is saying, am I allowed to buy insurance on this? Can I buy insurance on this ring? And the answer to that is, well, who owns the ring? Who has insurable interest in the ring? You have to be tied to the ring financially to be able to insure it. And then, and or be a family or have business and uh, business blood uh, money. That's what makes insurable risk. Okay, so anyway, the fiance um, bank loan, man purchasing the ring, fourth, I do not remember. It's the one you don't remember. So if, if I buy a ring to propose to someone, what, that ring is mine and I own that ring. I am definitely allowed to insure it. If I asked a bank to give me a loan to insure this ring, they, they own it and I'm making payments. And if I were to lose the ring, the bank would want me to pay them back the loan regardless so they can get insurance on it too. So the fiance, um, the man purchasing the ring can definitely buy insurance on it. He might hold on to it for a month or two before he actually proposes or whatever. Um, so he would want to insure it during that time. The bank, if they gave a loan for it, they could definitely insure it. How, how many of us have to have homeowners just because we have a mortgage? Or if you owe money on your car, you the insurance, the loan company wants to know that you have insurance and they even want to be added as, as an additional insured <clears throat> on your policy. Oh, I forgot to get water. <clears throat> oh, good Jesus. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I need to get something to drink. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask the boo here. 
Where's your neck? Grab me some water. Can you give me a can of sparkling soda out of the fridge downstairs? Okay. <clears throat> now the man, and then the man purchasing the ring. Now the fiance, she has insurable risk as well once she has the ring. So once you own the ring, now the now financially that is your ring and you can insure it. And then as they get married as a couple, they would have insurable risk on it as well. But once he gives it to her, it is hers. And she would have financial ownership of it unless he's also still making loan payments on it. Um, so it's probably the fourth option. I don't, because all of those work. Okay, and that was on the New York exam. Okay, cool. <clears throat> okay, perfect. All right, so physical hazards are things that I can see and touch. Then you have a, a moral hazard. A moral hazard is lying on purpose. So a moral hazard is lying on purpose. This is where you know it's wrong, but you're going to do it anyway. The most common example of a moral hazard is lying on your insurance exam. Ah, lying on your insurance application. <laughs> so as an insurance agent, you're going to be filling out applications for people, um, or they may be filling them out. This is where I live. <clears throat> this is what I drive. This is what my house is, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> um, sorry, the dog's um, you're going to be filling out an application. If you lie on that application, that is a moral hazard. So a moral hazard is lying. And that's the most common example when they ask about a moral hazard is that you lied on your um, insurance, uh, insurance application. The last one is a morale hazard. And as you know, it's got a little extra E at the end, a morale hazard. This one, when I think of morale, I think of EE, -E, like teenagers because teenagers are morale hazard. They are, I don't care, I do what I want, this feels good, YOLO, woo, I do whatever. That's a morale hazard. Now it's not, I'm gonna cheat the insurance company, those efforts. It's more like, I don't care if I crash my car, insurance will pay for it. So that's a morale hazard is this sense of carelessness. It's more about an attitude and just not caring than it is someone trying to lie and be deceitful. So morale, moral, no E is about lying and being deceitful, where morale is just, I don't care. I don't care, YOLO, I only live once. If I speed down the road because I love the wind in my hair and I happen to crash my car, I don't care, they'll fix it anyway. So it's like a teenager, I don't care if I mess up, mom will clean it up anyway. So that's the morale hazard is a sense of carelessness. Now there's usually a tricky question where they will say, um, let's smoke and drink which would be a physical hazard. Smoking and drinking are a physical hazard to your body. It increases the chance that you get sick. It increases the chance that you die sooner. So smoking and drinking are physical hazards, yes. However, they throw in a question that says, let's smoke and drink because we're gonna die anyway. That makes it a morale hazard. So that sense of carelessness, that attitude of, that is a morale hazard. I don't care, whatever. So morale hazard is a sense of carelessness. So again, you have your three physical or you have your three hazards. Hazards increase the chance of a loss. A physical hazard is one that you can see and touch. A moral hazard is lying on purpose. I lied on my insurance application. I don't want them to know that I'm a very bad driver. So I'm gonna pretend that I have no speeding tickets. I'm not gonna list my accidents on there for them. I'm going to lie to them. 
And then a morale hazard is I just don't care. They're going to take care of it. Whatever you deal with it. I don't care. I'm having a good time. And by the way, don't lie to insurance companies. As you begin working for them, you will see that they know everything about everything. They have all the data on you. They know every claim you've ever filed for every insurance company ever because they are all friends with each other. Okay, and they wanna protect, protect themselves against people who lie. So they share information with each other about people who lie. So don't ever lie to the insurance company. They will find out. Okay, now, oh, this is perfect for this. How does, how does insurance handle all of this? So insurance, when we, if, if insurance is a transfer of risk. So let's say I buy car insurance. I pay $100 a month for my car insurance. If I crash my car and cause an accident, they could be paying me hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars, depending on the coverage that I have. How are they able to take $100 from me each month and be prepared to pay me potentially millions of dollars if I, if I get into an accident? And the reason they're able to do that is the law of large numbers. The law of large numbers is basically endless amounts of data that insurance companies have to make predictions about things. And the more data they have, the better they can get at making predictions. So they know if you tell them, I'm a 35 year old woman um, with hypothyroidism, that's me, they will be able to predict the likelihood of when I will die and they will use that to determine my insurance rates. Like they have statistics on everything. <laughs> the likelihood of you crashing, the likelihood of your car being stolen, the likelihood of your house burning down. <clears throat> they have all that data and they use it to make predictions. How likely is this person gonna get in an accident? They use the law of large numbers and it will make the prediction for them about how likely you are to be in an accident. Now the law of large numbers is not asked about other than the definition. So when they talk about the law of large numbers, they want you to say, the law of large numbers says, the more information I have to look at, the more data I have, the more stats I have, the more predictable losses will be. So the more I have to look at, the more predictable losses will be. Now with the law of large numbers, yes, they definitely ask about the law of large numbers, but they always ask it in the form of a definition. What does the law of, law, law of large numbers say? The, the more uh, data I have, the more predictable the loss will be. That's how they word it. Or they will say, what says the more data you have, the more predictable losses will be. <clears throat> and in, um, law of large numbers becomes the answer. So that's how insurance companies are able to take $100 from me and yet have $100,000 million potentially pay out to me is because they know the data of the likelihood of me actually being in an accident. And with insurance, everyone is paying in. All of us have to have car insurance. We're all buying car insurance. We're all paying that $100 a month, whatever it is. But only some of us will actually file a claim. So it's very rare for every person ever to file a claim. That hardly have ever happens. Um, and they exclude things that would cause that, like war. War is excluded. They do not cover war on your insurance policy. Because if you have a war, there's no statistics to predict about how much damage might be done. They don't have that data because you can't make predictions about something that you don't even know could happen from some country, whatever. So war is excluded because they have no data on it. Um, or flood, flood is excluded 
from um, homeowners and dwelling policies and property policies because it impacts everybody and it's devastating. So insurance, um, the government had to take over flood insurance because insurance companies were not able to make a profit. And that's the other mind blowing thing too, is with the law of large numbers, insurance companies are able to only collect $100 from me, only collect $100 from you, have millions of dollars to pay out to us if we file a claim and still make a ton of money. Like that's crazy. Insurance companies know what they're doing and they use data all day long to figure it out. And that's the law of large numbers. Okay, where's my indemnity word? Indemnity. All right, we haven't talked about indemnity, but I'm about to talk about reinsurance. So I need to talk about indemnity first. Indemnity is, and I, it's probably at the end of the, the notes anyway, but indemnity is what the insurance company does for us. So we transfer the risk to them. That pure risk of our house burning down, we transfer it to them they will pay the bill. When they pay the bill to fix our car and to rebuild our house, they are indemnifying us. They are making us whole again. So if I had a three bedroom, two bathroom house and it burns down and they rebuild me a three bedroom, two bathroom house, I have been restored. I am restored to my previous financial condition of being a homeowner with three bedrooms and two, two bathrooms. So indemnity is to restore to put you back to where you were before. So to indemnify someone means to make them whole, to bring them back to where they were before. Now, you're not supposed to make money off of insurance. You're just supposed to be restored to where you were before. Insurance is not meant for you to profit off of. Now, there are certainly times or situations where it can feel like that, especially if you have life insurance and a person dies, you get millions of dollars, you're like, whoa. But what you're actually insuring is the potential for that person to have made that millions of dollars. Um, so it's not technically like a profit, but it can certainly feel that way. But indemnity is all about restoring, making you whole again, um, not, not making you profit, not making you wealthy. That's not necessarily the point of insurance, especially with homeowners dwelling, car insurance like that. There certainly is insurance on the life, on the life side, like annuities that can help with making you wealthy. Um, but, but that's a whole different ballgame that we're not even dealing with right now. So indemnity is to make us whole. Now, going back to the idea where there are some things that are so big and so drastic that everyone is filing a claim at the same time, that can happen. And especially when you think of like a wildfire, um, if a wildfire breaks out, burns down an, an entire, you know, community, everyone's house is gone and destroyed or tornado. You know, there may come a time where the insurance company goes, whoa, too many claims all at once. And what they can do to help prevent them from being in that situation is to have another insurance company back them. And that's called reinsurance. Reinsurance is when one insurance company will back another insurance company for all or some of their losses. But they don't say back, they say indemnify because it means to make them whole again. So let's say I'm State Farm and there's like way more claims than we predicted because there's like all these natural disasters happening. We're running out of money. We're like, oh my gosh, we can't pay all these claims. If I have another, if I have another insurance company who's reinsuring me, they're gonna help me out. They're gonna take over some of the claims. They're gonna help pay the bill. Now I paid for that. Reinsurance isn't free. It's not like, oh, we'll help you. 
is that you pay us and we will we will help you when you when that happens. So reinsurance is um, when one company indemnifies another company. It's just where what like I'll I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. We'll take care of each other. All right. Now with insurance companies. Um, hey Melissa, can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Um, I have a, so you know how indemnity how we were talking about and then we have replacement costs. And I know replacement cost is used to calculate actual cash value, but I was just wondering, is there really a difference between the two? Yes, and that's actually a good point because in, uh, replacement cost defeats indemnity, which could be a test question. Um, and I actually talked about this in my most uh, recent YouTube video, indemnity versus replacement versus um, actual cash value. So in depth, so when I give the example of my house burns down, and, uh, and the builds it. Marita, can you check your mute? There we go. I think she got it. Okay. There we go. Okay. I know she's ha she's having audio issues. I think. Anyway, okay. So uh, replace. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about replacement cost, actual cash value, and this is fine. It's coming from the next section. Anyway, all is good. Replacement cost is going and buying something brand new. I like to call replacement cost Best Buy. It's it's the money that I would need to go in and buy something brand new at today's prices. That's replacement cost. Actual cash value, on the other hand, is the goodwill value, the used value. How much? So so let's think about this for a second. You you go to Best Buy, you buy a brand new TV for a thousand dollars. You take it home, you hang it on your wall, you use it for a year, it's great, but then next year you wanna upgrade, you wanna get a bigger one. You go to sell that TV, how much are you gonna get for it? A thousand? Heck no. No one is gonna pay you a thousand dollars for a TV that you've had for a year and you've taken it out of the box and you've used it, you've touched it, you got your fingerprints on it, you, you wore down the remote control buttons, no one's going to pay you $1,000 for that. They're going to give you the goodwill value, the used value. Replacement costs would be saying, oh, you know what? We will give you the $1,000 for the TV. That's not that's beyond indemnified. You would be profiting in that way. So if I do have a, a year-old TV and it, and it burns, the insurance company wants to give me the value of a one-year-old TV. That's what I had. They're restoring me to where I was before. A person with a one-year-old TV, it's, it's been used. It has wear and tear on it, has cat hair on it. It's been touched. It's been used. It's not brand new out of the box, which is what replacement or in the box. That's what replacement cost is, brand new in the box. So when they, when they restore us with replacement cost, they are actually allowing us to profit. They are allowing us to make extra money. But the thing is, is and, or let's look at another example. Instead of the TV, think about your car. If you buy a car brand new, sure, you pay whatever you pay. As soon as you drive off the lot, it's not worth that much. The fact that there's now a title owner immediately devalues your car. And as you drive around, the value goes down further and further. And let's say it's five years in that you've owned this car and you crash it. They're not going to give you the same amount of money you used to buy that car. They're going to give you what you could sell that car for right now. And that's actual cash value is the used value of the car. 
if they were to completely replace the car brand new again, I am being put in a better financial position. Instead of being Melissa with a five-year-old car, I'm Melissa with a brand new car. I have been indemnified and then some because they're giving me back all the value. And so replacement costs actually defeat indemnity. Now with most of your coverages, everything is pretty much actual cash value. Your car is destroyed, actual cash value. Your TV burns in a fire, actual cash value. The only thing that they really keep at replacement is um, the walls and the roof because you can't rebuild a house with used wood. They need to rebuild the house with brand new wood, brand new roof tiles, brand new siding, brand new foundation, right? Or whatever. Like they, they can't build a house with used materials. So replacement cost does defeat indemnity. It's like the one time you are profiting off of insurance is when they rebuild you a brand new house because there's not really another option. And that's where replacement cost defeats indemnity because you might be walking away. Like imagine if, if you had a house built in the 1970s, never updated, never remodeled, you try to sell it, you know, you might make, you know, 150, depending on the neighborhood, whatever. But if that house burns down and the insurance company rebuilds it and it's a brand new house, all remodeled, all fresh stuff, all brand new stuff, you could sell it for maybe 250, 300 even because it's all brand new. But there's but the insurance can't build you a house from the 70s. So you will benefit, you will profit from replacement costs, but there's no way around it. But the thing is is like if I have a 3 bedroom 2 bathroom house and it burns down, they're not going to rebuild me a 20 bedroom 10 bathroom house. They're going to rebuild me what I had before. So they try to keep they try to keep it as close to what it was without having you profit too much, but there's really no way to avoid that, you know, brand new house. Cause it's just, it is what's gonna happen. All right, hopefully that, that clear, I think you already said that cleared that up for you. So awesome, um, perfect. Um, okay, all right. So let's talk about um, insurance companies. So we're gonna talk about stock companies versus mutual companies and also um, insurance companies in general. So in order for an insurance company and actually, um, Let's do a little five minute break. So we're on the five minute mark. So come back. I don't know what time zone you're in. Come back at the 10 minute mark. So take five minutes. Um, this class is very short anyway. So I don't want to give out too, too long of breaks. I'm going to go get some water. <laughs> he hasn't got my text. My dad must be keeping him very busy. Um, he's making repairs all around the house. It's amazing having this man who actually knows how to do things. But anyway, um, I'm going to go get water. Be back at the 10 minute mark. See you guys in a minute. Okay.
All right. Did I come back on? Yeah. Okay. There I am. Yeah. Okay. All right. Coming back up. I was. Oh. <laughs> Once you receive it. Um. Oh, for the Cash App, uh, Angela, send her the. You have the link. You have the Zoom link. It's in your Zoom. So you can just send her that. That's fine. But I haven't received anything yet. Okay. I have one quick question. Yes. I want to know how do I sign up for the 101? One-on-one -on -one with Angela or me? Oh, with you. Um, I can send you the link. Okay, I thank you. Yep. And I can I'll share that at the end too. Yeah, I'll share it at the end. Um, don't okay. don't let me forget, but um, I'll put it out there. Okay. All right, double checking. Everyone seems okay. Okay. Okay, so well, we're talking about insurance companies. Okay, so insurance is a transfer of risk. We've got our two types of risk, pure risk, loss or nothing, speculative risk, lose or win. We've got our hazards, increase the chance of a loss. We have our physical hazards, things that we can see and touch. We have our moral hazards, which is lying on our insurance application. We have our morale hazards with that little extra E, and that's the sense of carelessness. Um, we have our peril, which is the cause of loss, the reason that we file the claim. Um, how are insurance companies able to do this with the law of large numbers? They look at all the data to determine things. Um, now we're gonna talk about uh, insurance companies specifically. So when an insurance company wants to be an insurance company and sell insurance, they have to go to the Department of Insurance in that state and say, I wanna sell here. And if the Department of Insurance says, yes, you can sell here, they will give them what is known as a certificate of authority. Now, what you wanna remember about a certificate of authority is that it makes an insurance company admitted and authorized. A certificate of authority makes an insurance company admitted. A certificate of authority makes an insurance company authorized. Never certified. I know it's got the word certificate in it. And on the state exam, they will say, what does the certificate of authority mean? And you will go, certified? No, doesn't mean that. Uh-uh. It means admitted or authorized. The certificate of authority means admitted or authorized. And then they may ask you, what does admitted mean? Admitted means authorized. What does authorized mean? Authorized means admitted. <laughs> so it's kind of a weird thing that they've got with all of this. But so a certificate of authority is what an insurance company needs to be allowed to sell. So a certificate of authority is what an insurance company needs in order to be allowed to sell. Once they have a certificate of authority, they are known as admitted and authorized and admitted is authorized authorized is admitted they love to ask this question you know what does an insurance company have to do before they are allowed to sell they have to get a certificate of authority and i kind of briefly um insurance is a state-run thing it's not president it's not congress it's not federal it's a state-run program so every state has their own department of insurance and the department of insurance is the ones who issues the certificates of authorities. Sometimes they ask you, what is the certificate of authority like? It's like an insurance license because you need to get an insurance license before you're allowed to sell. An insurance company needs to get a certificate of authority before they are allowed to sell. 
So it's similar to that. And in fact, I've seen that on the exam sometimes where they will say, what is the certificate of authority similar to? It's similar to an insurance license as an agent. If I want to be allowed to sell, I've got to have a license. If they want to be allowed to sell, they got to have a certificate of authority. Now, insurance companies, um, there's many different setups for insurance companies. And in your textbook, you may read stock, mutual, franchise. Um, there's a few other ones I forget. But the two main ones are stock versus mutual. So stock versus mutual. So let's talk about mutual first. So State Farm is a mutual company. And they're amazing. I love State Farm. When you learn more about State Farm, you're like, oh my God, it's one of the greatest companies. But anyway, State Farm is a mutual company. And what that means is that people who buy the policy become members. And as a member, you own the company. So in a mutual company, you own the company. You mutually own it with everyone else. So anyone who is insured with State Farm it, you own State Farm if you have a policy with them. You are part owner of the company if you are in a mutual company. Now, this is how cool State Farm is. When they collect the premium money, that premium money is saved only for claims. They don't take any money off of it. They don't take any money off the top to pay themselves, to pay for their... Um, their employees, they don't take any money from the, other than commission, but they take the premium money and they invest it. And that's how State Farm makes their money. So like, they're not even, they're not even using premium money to fund themselves. They're taking the premium money, investing it, and then they take it off the top, but they leave the premium money just for claims. And then what happens at the end of the year? And so again, so State Farm uses the law of large numbers to make predictions about how many claims will be filed. So they say, okay, looking at all the, the members, the mutual people that we have insured, we estimate that we will spend $20 million in claims. And so they collect enough premium to have $20 million available for claims. At the end of the year, if there is still money left, in the premium money bucket, they will give it back to the people who paid the premium in. So in a mutual company, if, if I own the company and I'm paying premium for my insurance and they end up not needing all of it because they maybe they anticipated a lot more claims than what actually happened, they will give me the money back. It's my money because I am a member. I own this company. So when there is leftover premium money that wasn't used for claims, they give it back to the owners, the people who paid the premium. That is a mutual company. And I don't know if she's still in here, but um, Angela, if you are, join in one so that people can see how amazing you are with explaining stuff and why they should book appointments with you. Um, but she explained stock versus mutual very well. Are you in here, Angela? She might not be in here. I'll give her a second. Okay, I'm going to steal her line. So she says that when you think of mutual, it's me and you. Do you want to own your policy? Yes, you do. Do you want to participate in your policy? Yes, you do. Do you want to get back money if they didn't need it? Yes, you do. That is a mutual company. So a mutual company is, if you look at the text here on the screen, 
Mutual companies are owned by policy owners. They issue participating policies and dividends are not taxed. Now the dividend is that money coming back. So like I said, there's extra money left over in the bucket at the end of the year that they thought they needed for claims and they didn't have to actually use it. When they return it back to the mutual policy owners, it's considered a return of unused premium as a dividend. It's a dividend, but it's considered a return of unused premium. And then the government won't tax you on it because that was already your money. So like if you, you when, when you get an income check, so I get a check from work, they've already taxed it. And then I use that money to pay premium. That money has already been taxed. And if I get it back to me, I shouldn't have to pay taxes on it again. So you won't pay taxes when you get that money back. So return of unused premium is, is only if you're mutual companies because the people who pay the premium are the policy owners. And if they're gonna get any of that premium money back in the form of a dividend, it's a return of unused premium. So the dividends are not taxed in a mutual company. And when they say issue participating policies, that means that you as an owner are participating in the ownership of the company of the policy, okay? On the other hand, you can have a stock company. And stock companies are not owned by the policy owners. They are owned by people who just bought a piece of the company and the a stock or a share of the company unrelated to a policy. So I can own a piece of an insurance company without owning a policy. It's only in mutual companies where policy dictates ownership. If it's not a mutual company, your policy has nothing to do with owning the company. It's only in mutual company. Mutual is all of us. Mutual means me and you. It's a mutual feeling. If, you, if you're in love with someone, they love with you, that's a mutual feeling. We both feel the same thing. We both own the same company. I have a policy, you have a policy, we own it together. We're mutually in this. In a stock company, there is no mutual nothings. It is, it is people who wanna make money. <laughs> so they collect premium they, and they estimate we're gonna have 20 million in claims, whatever. They, they have less claims. Any money left over in the premium bucket will go to the shareholders, will go to the stockholders. It will not go back to the people who paid it. Only The only way you can get your premium money back is if you're with a mutual company. You will not get your money back if you are in a stock company. And by the way, you're not guaranteed to get your money back. That's only if they have a surplus. So if they estimate 20 million in claims and they end up having 30 million, you're definitely not going to get a dividend because they're 10 million in the hole. And they've got to use their own money to, to fix that hole. So there's only a dividend if there is extra money left at the end of the year, whatever their fiscal year is. So whether you're stock or mutual, an insurance company will use the law of large numbers to determine the premium that people should pay. And then they save and store that premium for claims. And then at the end of the year, if there is money left over, in a mutual company, they will give those dividends back to the policy owners as a return of unused premium, and they will not be taxed. In a stock company, they will give out 
the dividends to the shareholders and the stockholders who never paid premium. So in a stock company, when a shareholder gets a dividend, that is money that is coming to them. That is income to them. It's money they never had before that now they have. So in a stock company, the owner, the shareholder would have to pay taxes because that's money that they didn't have before. It's money coming into them. So um, it, please ask if you have any questions. And Barb is saying this has definitely showed up on her Michigan exam, understanding the difference between stock and mutual. If you can just remember the bullet points, you're good. If you can remember mutual is owned by policy owners, mutual issues, participating policies, mutual dividends are not taxed. You can pretty much answer any question they have about mutual. Stock is owned by shareholders, non-participating policies, dividends are taxed. If you can just remember those three things for each stock and mutual, you're good for the exam. But again, please make sure you ask me any questions. Okay, now um, we wanna talk about where insurance companies are located. Where are they based at? Insurance companies can either be domestic, foreign, or alien. Domestic, foreign, or alien. And that in and of itself can be a question. How can, or what are the ways insurance companies can be domiciled is the word they use, which dos, domestic domiciled just means your home. Where, where are insurance companies domiciled? Domestic, foreign, and alien. Whatever word, and it's usually an accept question. Insurance companies can be domiciled in all the ways except, and you're looking for an answer that is not domestic, foreign, and alien, because those are the ways that insurance company can be docimicile. Um, okay, so what are the ways? Domestic is the insurance company started here, headquartered here, based here, and selling here. That's domestic. So if I'm an insurance company and I get started in Michigan, I am founded in Michigan, I am based in Michigan, I am headquartered in Michigan, and if I sell in Michigan, I am domestic. Now I may branch out and sell in other states. So if I'm a Michigan company, I started according to Michigan laws and rules because any company you start in any state will have to follow those state laws. So if I'm an insurance company that started in Michigan, I'm domestic to Michigan because that is where I'm headquartered. That is where I'm founded. That is where my home base is at. Any other company that I try to sell in will be foreign because foreign says you're not headquartered here. You're not based here. You're not founded according to these state rules, but you are selling here. So foreign is where it's not my home base, but I am selling here. Domestic is my home base and I'm selling here. Alien means completely outside the country. I know many of us think foreign for that, but you've got to shift your mind a little bit. Foreign is just another state. That's not the home state. So an insurance company, if they're selling across all 50 states, they're going to be domestic in one state and foreign in every other state. An insurance company can only be domestic in one state because that is where they're domiciled. That's where they're based off. Did you have a question? I saw somebody unmute for a second. Okay, maybe not. Okay. No, I'm fine. Thank you. 
no, no worries. All right. And then, so alien is, is another country. So our memory trick for domestic foreign and alien is if they have one state in the question. So if the question says an insurance company is based in Indiana and they're selling in Indiana, they only mentioned one state. It's going to be domestic. If they say an insurance company is based in Wisconsin and is selling in New York, they mention two states, the answer is going to be foreign. If they ask a question, they say you're based in England or another country, it's going to be alien. So domestic, one state, foreign, two states, alien country. They're going to use the word country. You're out of the country. You're in another country. And they may not use the word country, but they may actually say another country. <laughs> like if they say an insurance company is based out of Spain, what are they? Well, Spain is another country. It's not America. It's another country, so it's going to be alien. So you have domestic foreign alien, domestic, I'm, I'm home here and I'm selling here. I'm headquartered here. I'm based here and I'm selling here, domestic. Foreign, I'm selling here, but I'm home somewhere else. I'm domestic somewhere else. My headquarters is somewhere else. Alien, complete, it's an insurance company completely outside of the country. All right. All right, now we're going to talk about you working for the insurance company. So whether you work for stock and mutual, doesn't matter, whatever. That's cool as long as you know the, the three bullet points. Um, when you work for a company, you, you fall under what is known as the law of agency. Now I'm gonna tell you right now, the definition that you see right here is not technically the definition of law of agency, like this, this right here. That's not technically the definition of law of agency, but let me explain myself. Law of agency explains the relationship between the insurance company and the agent. So the company you're gonna work for and you, your relationship with each other is defined by the law of agency. So the law of agency defines the relationship between the insurance company and the agent who is selling their insurance. Now, there are um, two main rules under the law of agency that are super crucial to memorize, which are the two things that are on the screen. That the um, law, that the, Agent represents the insurer. So what that means is that you as the agent, when you're working for State Farm, you are State Farm. To every customer that you meet, you are State Farm. You represent the company that you work for. You are a representative of them. You are a, you are a piece of them, essentially. So the agent represents the insurer. The agent represents the insurer which also means that they are responsible for you. And anything you do or say acting for them, they ultimately are responsible for. Um, you don't represent the customer. That would be a broker. A broker is someone who works for the customer. They, they find the customer's cheapest policy with any company or whatever it is you're looking for. So a broker is not tied to a company. They're tied to the customer, where an agent is tied to the company. Now that, that doesn't matter so much. That you, some of you may have questions about brokers on your exam. Not many of you do though. But as an agent, you represent the insurer you work for. The other um, number two rule to know about law of agency. So remember law of agency defines the relationship between the insurance company and the agent. The first biggest rule being that the agent represents the insurer. 
The other rule is that knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. And that's just a weird phrase. You're like, what? Knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer, huh? All you need to do is memorize that. Knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer because that's most of the exam questions will just be very focused on that being very definition-based. But what does that mean? All it means is that when a customer calls you and you're like, hi, this is Jake with State Farm, the customer is going to go, oh, Jake with State Farm. Anything that you tell me is State Farm telling me. That's all that is. When you're talking to a customer, to the customer, you are the company. And so everything that you say is knowledge of the insurer. They believe and trust what you are saying because you work for the company. So law of agency describes the relationship between the insurance company and the insurance agent. And the two main rules to know are that the agent represents the insurer and that knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. Now, what authority do you have as an insurance agent? And Angela really loves to switch these around. So instead of saying agent authority, say authority of the agent. And it helps with understanding that we're talking about what authority do I have as an agent? What power do I have as an insurance agent? There are three, although one of them is not quite real. It's known as perceived authority. The first one is express authority. What is, what is express authority is whatever is written in my contract. So when you go to work for an insurance company, they're gonna have you sign a piece of paper that is your contract that says you're allowed to sell with them. It'll say you're allowed to do this, 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 sign here. And that is your, your contract with the insurance company telling you what you're allowed to do as an agent for them. Express is written, express is in the contract. A contract is written, it's a typed up document, it is written. So express is written, express is the contract. You know you have that authority because you can read it on this piece of paper and it says you have that authority. All right, the next one is implied. Now this is assumed by the insurer. There will be things that you do as part of your job that is not typed up in that contract. They can't possibly write down every possible thing that you may do for them as an insurance agent. Like it may not say, you have the authority to buy post-it notes. <laughs> They're not gonna say that. Do you have the authority to buy? Yes, you can buy post-it notes, write it off as a business expense, sure, whatever. But they're not gonna put that in your contract but they assume that you know that you could take care of yourself, that you can you know, do these things. So implied is we don't, implied is you do have that power because the insurance assumes that you can take that power, that you have that power because there's just things that you're gonna have to do for them, working for them that may not be typed up. So implied authority is still coming from the insurance company. It's still real. It's just not written down. It's assumed, it's implied, like, duh, like, duh, you have to do this working for us. We just didn't write it down in your contract. We didn't want to make your contract 20 pages long. So we didn't write down every possible thing. We just assume you can do it. So that's implied authority. The It's not written in the contract. It's not expressly written, but the insurance company assumes that you can do it. That's implied authority. The last one, which is the most trickiest one, 
is apparent authority or also known as perceived authority. And what does perceived mean? Perceived is what a customer thinks is true. You can have two people in the same situation and, and both of them believe two different things based on what they perceive to be the situation. Um, this is where a lot of arguments happen with couples. <laughs> they have different perceptions of what happened. And so your perception is not reality. Your perception is your view of what is happening, which may or may not be true. So with apparent authority, this is one where it's not real authority, but it can make a real impact, which is why you need to understand it. When a customer comes to you, just like we said, knowledge of the agent is knowledge of the insurer. When the customer comes to you, they believe you are State Farm or whoever it is you're working for. So what you say out of your mouth, they believe is the insurance company and they're gonna trust you and believe that what you're saying is true. If what you're saying is false, but the customer believes it, that's not real authority. That's perceived authority. It's fake authority. You don't actually have that authority. So for instance, as an insurance agent, you don't write claims checks. That's the claims department. You will never do a claim like that. You may deliver a claim check, but you aren't the one who writes them. You're not the one who gets them out. You're not the one who issues them. So if a customer comes in, and this actually happened in this the movie um, Fargo with Billy Bob Thornton in it. Great movie, love it. Crazy movie. I actually, I think it's a series, but um, there's an insurance agent in that um, TV show and he tells the client, that he will get the claims. He's like, oh yeah, I'll get that claims check. And her husband had died. And he's like hitting on her. And he's like, oh baby, I'm gonna get you that claims check. Don't you worry about it. I'll have that available for you tomorrow. I'll take care of everything. What is the customer gonna do? She's gonna believe him. She's gonna believe that he can get that claims check because why, why would he lie about that? She's just gonna trust him as an insurance agent. But you as an agent do not have that authority to write a claims check. So you shouldn't ever say it. So apparent authority is where the customer is going to assume you have this power. So you need to be careful about what you say. Now, um, with the, how are you going to see a parent on the exam? One, perceived. What type of authority is, or what type of agent authority is known as perceived? Apparent. Or uh, apparent is known as what type of authority? Perceived. I think it's true, but that doesn't mean it is. Another way that we might see apparent authority is on business cards or letterheads or stationery. So if they say, for instance, that you um, sent a letterhead to the customer with a handwritten note, even if you're like, you're so cute, I wanna go on a date with you, like the, per the customer is gonna read that as an official letter from the insurance company. And they may go, oh my God, if I don't go on a date with this agent, they may cancel my insurance because it's coming from an official letterhead. So anything that's typed up on an official letterhead or stationary of the business, whatever you say, you have to understand that the customer is gonna perceive it and read it as an authority of the company. The other way that we talk about apparent or perceived authority on the insurance exam is business cards that are printed too soon. So let's say you call your grandma. You're like, hey, grandma, I'm studying for my insurance exam. I'm going to be an insurance agent. 
and I'm so excited. And she, grandma's like, oh my God, I'm so excited for you. So then grandma decides to go to Vistaprint and to make you little business cards that she can pass out to all her friends because she's so excited for you. So she orders cards that say, um, Joe, licensed agent, and she passes it out to her friends. Her friends are going to believe that Joe is a licensed agent because it says so on the business card. Be like, Grandma, you passed those out too soon. I'm not licensed yet. I'm only studying. But to the customer, they're going to think that you are a licensed agent and that you could sell them insurance. So that's another example of a parent authority. All right, so I got a question from Astrid. So right now at my job, which is an insurance company, I'm still not the agent. I only do endorsements, file claims, customer representative, et cetera. Am I a parent authority or implied? You're none of those because you're not an agent. You would have to be, these are agent authority. And until you get your license, you're not an agent. You're like customer service or something like that. But as an agent, you have all of these. As an insurance agent, you have express authority, which is written in my contract. You have implied authority, which is assumed by the customer. And you have apparent authority, which is assumed by the client, the customer. Again, apparent doesn't mean real, but just that you have to understand the client is going to believe you to have the type of power simply because you work for the insurance company. And that's the apparent authority. Okay. Fiduciary. As an insurance agent, you are known as a fiduciary. Uh, or a, a fiduciary is a person of trust. So fiduciary, person of trust, fiduciary, person of trust, fiduciary, person of trust. As an agent, you are being trusted with a lot of things. Social security numbers, addresses, birthdays, credit cards, all this stuff. You're being trusted with a lot of stuff. So you yourself need to be a person of trust. You are now a fiduciary as an insurance agent. Now, the biggest, most important part of being a fiduciary is that you are gonna collect money from the customer in the form of premium, and then you need to submit it to the insurer. So as an agent, I collect money and then I submit it to the insurer. So fiduciary is a person of trust who needs to be trusted with collecting the money and submitting it to the insurer. <clears throat> and that's the main question they'll ask you about with fiduciary, that you are need to be trusted um, with the money that they collect and then submit it to the insurance company. So I like to tell people, fiduciary funds, fiduciary funds, fiduciary funds. Funds is money. They may not use the word funds. They may use the word premium, but premium is money. Money is funds. So fiduciary funds, funds is money. Money is premium. Premium is money. It's all together. It's just a memory trick, but you may not actually see the word funds. But when you think fiduciary, think funds, which is money. And your biggest job is to take the money from the customer and submit it to the insurer as a fiduciary. The other thing, which is not typed on here, is that commingling. Commingling would be taking customer money and putting it in your wallet. You're not allowed to do that. You have to keep the money you collect from premium separate from your money. You're not allowed to mix money. So even if you you drove to a customer's house 100 miles away, they pay you the premium in cash. 
You're going to drive back to your office and put it in the savings account, bank, whatever. But on your way back, you're like, I'm hungry. I'm going to grab some McDonald's. You go through McDonald's, realize I don't have my wallet. It, I must have left it back at the office, whatever. I don't have my wallet. But I have this cash that the customer gave me. Can I use it? No. You would be guilty of commingling, which you're not allowed to do. So don't commingle. So commingle is mixing my money with premium money. You're not allowed to do that. You got to keep the money completely separate. I have a question. Yes, Michelle. Okay. Uh, one of the questions that I did notice on my exam FX was if a customer gave me a check for the premium, I never turned it over like I was supposed to that day mm -hmm. and they got into an accident. Uh-huh. Sorry, my dog just came in. <laughs> You've actually seen her on your Facebook post. <laughs> but, um, get down, down. Uh, if she gets into an accident, but I haven't given that money to, you know, whoever I'm supposed to give it to, what happens, who's responsible, will it actually be an approved claim if she gets into an accident that evening when I haven't turned the money over? Yeah. I know that's a little long, but. No, is and that's another thing about law of agency, that paying the agent is the same as paying the insurance company. Because imagine this, so your, your case was that the agent just failed to do it for whatever reason. But what if, what if I collected the premium money and then I was in a car accident and it all burned up in a fire? Do I, am I going to charge you another hundred dollars? Like, sorry, I lost your money. You got to pay me another hundred to keep your insurance. No, be like, heck no, I already paid you. Paying the agent is the same as paying the insurance company. So as soon as, so even this, this matters, like, if an insurance, if, if a policy is going to cancel at midnight due to non-payment, as a customer, you can go to your agent's house, knock on the door, make them wake up, throw them the money and say, my premium's paid. <laughs> as long as the agent gets the money, it counts. Okay. So even, and even if like, let's say, let's say that, you know, grant, my grandma always pays her payment. She makes, she goes to state farm every month and pays her payment in person. So let's say she comes in Friday night, like it's the end of the day, the agents, they're ready to go home, go party, whatever. Grandma hands them the check. They say, thanks, grandma. They give her a little receipt. They put it on their desk and they're, they're going to come back to it later. They're, 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 their day is over. They're ready to leave. Okay. The insurance company has no record that grandma paid her payment because the insurance agent didn't log it, which is totally fine. There's no requirement that they have to log a payment the moment they get it. And especially on 5 p.m. on a Friday, they're ready to go. So let's say grandma gets into an accident on Sunday. She calls the insurance company at the claims department. They say, sorry, grandma, you don't have an active policy. She goes, no, nah, I paid. They say, okay, we'll wait till we talk to your agent. They go talk to the agent on Monday. Oh yeah, payment's right here. Grandma paid, everything's fine. They go, okay, grandma, you're covered. No problem. As soon as you pay the agent, you're paid. Your premium's paid. Even if it takes them a while to plug it into the system or even... Because insurance agents, you depending on the state, you have up to 30 to 45 days to turn that premium in. So you collect it from the customer. The insurance companies may still not see it for 30 to 45 days, depending on the rules that you have to how quickly you submit it. So as soon as you pay the agent, you're paid. <clears throat> um, and 
what you're talking about in your example, it would be an errors and emission problem. So errors and emission is the type of insurance that we as insurance agents need to have. If we make an error while setting up the policy, or in this case, um, let's say that the question was a client called to add a fourth car. You took down the information. You said, I'm going to get that added to your policy. Your daughter calls, mom, I'm in an emergency. You run over to help your daughter. You completely forget about adding that fourth car. A month later, they crash it. It's destroyed. It's totaled. What will happen? The claim will be paid. And the agent is going to have their insurance, their E&O policy would have to pay out for it, for the mistake that they made. So you made a mistake. You literally have insurance for making a mistake. And it's called errors and emissions. And you're going to have to buy it. If you work for yourself, you have to buy E&O yourself. If you work for a call center or whatever, they'll buy it for you. But E&O is the type, E&O, errors and emissions. That's the type of insurance you have as an agent. And it will be what pays for if you make a mistake. Okay, um, Barb, question on the MI exam. A, a marketing company is asking for customer information. What do you tell them? No, you cannot give marketing companies information. You're not allowed to share or sell insurance information without explicit consent from the customer. They have to sign saying, yes, you can sell my paper to a marketing firm. Um, not allowed to do that. And that actually pops us into Graham Leach Bliley. As you're reading, if, you, if you're just beginning to study or you've been studying whatever, there's a concept called Graham-Leach-Bliley. It's actually an insurance, um, it's a banking law, but it applies to insurance in the financing industry. What you want to remember about Graham-Leach-Bliley is it protects your privacy and that you need disclosures in order for the insurance company to share your information. So if they plan to share your information, they have to have a signature. They have to disclose it to you. And that falls under the rule of Graham Lee Bliley. And what you want to mostly remember, though, about Graham Leach Bliley is that it's privacy protection. So I like to pretend that's why I've been boxing. <laughs> pretend that you have bodyguards named Graham and Leach and Bliley and they're protecting your privacy. That's the main thing about Graham Leach Bliley is protecting your privacy. I have three bodyguards protecting my privacy. Um, and that if an insurance company shares my information, they have to get a signature. To that point, though, there are a couple of places you are allowed to share the information. And the one I've seen them ask about is like an FBI or law enforcement. So let's say one day you sit down, you sell a policy to Joe Bob. The next day, the FBI comes in and says, hey, Joe Bob is a known serial killer. We need to know everything that you talked to him about you are allowed to share that information with the FBI, with the law enforcement, with the police, whatever. That's the one place that you can share information without requiring a disclosure is to law enforcement. Okay, all right, now we're moving on to elements of a contract. So elements of a contract is important because insurance policies are contracts. So whether it's car insurance, auto insurance, homeowners insurance, health insurance, life insurance, they're all contracts. A policy is a contract. Every policy is a contract. So it's important for you to know contract law. Now there are four elements to a legal contract and you need to know all four. Agreement, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. Agreement, consideration, competent parties, 
legal purpose. Agreement, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. These are all four elements of an insurance contract, of a legal contract. And, it, and an insurance policy is a legal contract. So an insurance policy must have all four elements. One, you need to just remember the names. Agreement, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. Agreement, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose. You must remember all four names. Then you need to know what each one means. And the two they ask about the most are agreement and consideration. They will definitely ask about competent parties and legal purpose too. But you could expect potentially three to five questions about agreement alone. And three to five questions about consider, actually even more about consideration. These two concepts are asked about a lot, agreement and um, consideration. So let's talk about those. And so I, I saw somebody slap. Again, if you have a question, let's go ahead. If you just unmute yourself, I'll be able to see it um, if you have a question. So what is agreement? When uh, agreement is known as offer and acceptance. Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. When two people come in agreement, it means that one person made an offer and the other side accepted it. So one person makes an offer, the other person accepts it. You're in agreement. Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. One person makes an offer, the other person accepts it, you're in agreement, okay? So that is one question. What is agreement? Offer and acceptance. Or what is agreement known as? Offer and acceptance. Then they're gonna ask you, what is the offer and what is the acceptance? What is the offer? What is the acceptance? The offer is when the customer submits an application to transfer their risk. When it, it, it's funny because like if you hear a commercial call us to save 15% or more on your car insurance, that feels like an, an offer. Oh, they're offering me to save 15%. No, 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 no. Because even if you do call them and say, I want to save 15% or more, they're going to say, what's your name? What's your address? What cars do you drive? How many accidents have you had? You are filling out an application when you answer those questions. The offer is you listing out all of your risks and saying, will you take them? Can I transfer these risks to you? That is what the offer is. A customer saying, I have all these risks. Will you take them? If the insurance company says yes, they accept those risks and that means that they will issue the policy so agreement is known as offer and acceptance the offer is the customer submitting an application acceptance is the insurer issues the policy i offer my risks they accept it by issuing the policy we are in agreement so agreement is known as offer and acceptance offer is submitting the application acceptance is the insurer issues a policy now, where we get confused is with consideration, because consideration also has submitting an application, and it can get a little funky, but consideration also involves money. So <clears throat> what is consideration? Consideration is both parties must bring value. Both parties must bring value, okay? Now, 
if if I'm making an offer and you're making an acceptance, we also need to give value to each other because otherwise, why why else are we doing this? We have to have both offer and um, acceptance, but then we need to have value with it. You wouldn't ever join an agreement with someone if you're not going to get any value out of it. So consideration says both parties must bring value to the other parties. Both parties must bring value to the other parties. Then they're going to ask you, what is the value on each side? But they will not use the word value. They use the word value in the definition of consideration. Consideration says both parties must bring value to the other party. And then they're going to say, what, what consideration does the insured bring? And what is consideration on the side of the insurer? That's why I titled it this way in the notes. Consideration on the side of the insured, consideration on the side of the insurer. That's how they're gonna ask you the question. They're basically saying, what value does the customer bring? What value does the insurer bring? And the answer is app plus premium on the side of the customer and promise to pay a claim on the side of the insured. So let's talk about the customer side. The value that a customer brings, the consideration that a customer brings to the insurer is at all of my risks and the premium I'm willing to pay for it, I give that to the insurance company. And in return, the value that they give me is promise to pay the claim. They are promising that if I have a valid claim, they will pay it. That is the value that I get. Just a promise. A promise that if something happens, they will pay the claim. So Consideration, both parties must bring value to the other party. Consideration on the side of the insured is at plus premium. Consideration on the side of the insurer is promised to pay a claim. Now, where we get confused is offer, not agreement, by the way, people will choose. So there'll be a test question that says, a customer submits an app. What is this known as? Some people will choose agreement. No. Agreement is offer and acceptance. The answer cannot be agreement unless you have both offer and acceptance. If they're only asking about submitting the app, that's offer. Not only do you need the definition of agreement, you need the definition of offer and acceptance. And don't confuse the definition of offer with agreement and the definition of acceptance with agreement, they're all three distinctly different. Agreement is known as offer and acceptance. Offer is submitting the app. Acceptance is issuing the policy. Where we get confused is the value, the consideration on the side of the insured is submitting an application. But in order for it to be consideration, you have to have the money, the premium. So if the question says the customer submitted an application, what is that known as? You're going to choose offer. There's no discussion of premium. So it's going to be offer. Offer is the customer submits an app. Offer is the customer submits an app. That's it. If they say a customer submits an app and pays the premium, then the answer is consideration. You have to have both the offer and the premium or just premium, if they say the customer submitted premium, what is that known as consideration? Money, 
premium is the most important part of consideration. Okay, next one is competent parties. So competent parties means that when you sell insurance, you have to sell it to someone who knows what they're doing. They're not under the influence of drugs and alcohol and they are of legal age. They're old enough, okay? Old enough can kind of change depending on the state. Like New York, you can buy life insurance at 15 or something. But generally speaking, it's roughly 18. So old enough, knows what I'm doing, not under the influence of drugs and alcohol. If they ask a question that says, you sold a policy to someone who was under the influence, what happens? The answer is the policy is voided. It's as if it was never written because you never should have sold it to someone who was, who was under the influence and didn't know what they were doing. <clears throat> now, in terms of being under the influence, um, if you are taking a daily medication, thyroid, blood pressure, whatever, that's not under the influence. When they say under the influence, they mean something that's going to impair your thinking, impair your mind. That's going to be under the influence. Um, even pain meds. If a doctor prescribes it, that doesn't automatically mean you're competent. If your doctor prescribes you meds that say do not operate heavy machinery, you are incompetent in terms of buying an insurance policy, at least for the purposes of the exam. So if they say recreational drugs, alcohol, pain meds, those all will make you incompetent. Daily blood pressure medicine, thyroid, that's fine. That does not make you incompetent. So just keep that in mind. Another thing they like to try and um, throw you off with is asking about a felon. A felon is fine. As long as they are not under the influence, as long as they know what they're doing, and as long as they are of legal age, they're fine. Just the word felon alone meant, oh, they're incompetent. No, they're not. They're fine. They just have a felony. <laughs> so felons are okay. All right, last one is legal purpose, which is Joe Exotic all day long. So if you don't know Joe Exotic, he's a man who's currently in jail because he tried to pay someone to go murder someone else. You are not allowed to do that. That's called murder for hire. That is not legal. That is against the law. And if you attempt to do murder for hire, you will be thrown in jail. So that's legal purpose is that whatever contract you have cannot break the law cannot go against public policy. And if it does, it's not a legal contract and it cannot be upheld in court. Joe Exotic, if, if the guy didn't go murder, which he didn't, um, that damn Carol Baskins, Joe wouldn't be able to sue him and be like, I paid you five grand to murder her and you didn't, I'm gonna take you to court. No, <laughs> they would both go to jail. So legal purpose says you cannot break the law. You cannot go against public policy. So anything about law, 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 law is going to be legal purpose. So they mention the law, breaking the law, not against the law. It's all legal purpose. All right. <clears throat> um, adhesion. Um, okay. So, so agreement, consideration, competent parties, legal purpose are the four elements of a legal contract. And you want to remember all four. Agreement, offer, and acceptance. Offer submitting the app, acceptance the insurer issuing the policy, consideration, both parties must bring value to the other party, consideration on the side of the insured, the customer is app plus premium, consideration on the side of the insurer is a promise to pay a claim, 
competent parties. I'm old enough. I know what I'm doing. I'm not under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Legal purpose cannot break the law, cannot go against public policy, cannot hurt anyone. Those are the four elements of a legal contract. The next words that we're about to learn are um, unique to insurance policies. So they're part of a contract, but just insurance contracts, they're unique to insurance contracts. You're not necessarily gonna see these concepts on other contracts. So the first one is adhesion. And adhesion, oh, is my camera going in and out? It might be my internet, but I think it's plugged in. It should be good. All right, hopefully it's okay. Um, no, no, I was, I was actually talking about mine. I keep seeing it zooming back and forth and I'm not sure why. So that, that's the question. Do you know where your camera circle is? Do you see your circle for where your camera is? I'm on my iPad. I just got the iPad and I've never been on Zoom. Oh, you're amazing. So it could just be your iPad's kind of moving a little bit. Or I don't know, but you should be fine. It, it, you could turn I'm not sure if anybody's noticed it or if it's just me. All of a sudden I'm like, okay. No, just you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. You can turn your Thank camera you. off if it's distracting. You don't have to have your camera on. Okay, so adhesion is, the word adhesion is to, uh, think about ad, adhesive. Adhesive is sticky. Glue is adhesive. It ad, adheres, it sticks to. So when we say that an insurance contract is it has adhesion, what we mean is that the insurance company has to stick to what they said. So if their contract says, we will cover you if this happens, they need to stick to what they said and cover you if that happens. They're the ones who wrote the contract, so they need to do what the contract says. So adhesion is the insurer must stick to what they said. If they said they're gonna cover you, they need to cover you. The other side of adhesion is if I, as a customer, am gonna buy the policy, I gotta buy the whole policy. I can't say I only want this and I only want that. You got to stick to the whole thing, all or nothing. Now, there may be, you know, extra coverages that you can add and take off or whatever, but the base policy itself needs to be the same. Um, it, a customer cannot have a different contract than you, than you. When they sell an HO3, for instance, that HO3 is the same for everybody. What is typed up in that contract is the same for everybody. And then you can add extras if you want, you know, endorsements for water, sewer, backup, or whatever. But if you were to buy an endorsement, the wording of the endorsement cannot be changed by you. It can only be changed by the insurer. Um, adhesion is they stick to what they said. The way that they typed up your endorsement is the way they type up everyone else's endorsements. You all are reading the same language, the same words. They have to stick to what they said. And when you buy the policy, you have to take all of it or none of it. So if you're like, I only want this, I only want that, they're gonna be like, sorry, you can't. You have to buy all of it or none of it. Once you buy all of it, then you can sprinkle on some extra endorsements and some extra coverages, but you can't just say, I only want some of this and I only want some of that and I don't want any of this. Delete that paragraph for me. No, they're not gonna do that for you. They stick to what they said and you have to buy all the policy or none of the policy. The next one is aleatory, aleatory. Um, you could say it either way. It doesn't matter, aleatory, aleatory. This one is about an unequal exchange. 
So when you pay my life insurance premium, for instance, $28 a month, my payout, $2,500. Yeah, 250000 sorry, $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars. $28, $250,000. This is very unequal. $28, $250,000. Very unequal. That's aleatory, aleatory. When we pay our premium, even if I pay $28 every month for the next 30 years, which is how long my life insurance is for, it will not add up to $250,000, not even close. Our premium that we pay is teeny tiny compared to what the insurance company can pay out. And that's what aleatory aleatory is saying. It's an unequal exchange. Now that one will usually come in the form of a uh, scenario question. They will say, John purchased his life insurance policy two months ago. He has paid $200 in premium. He dies and 20,000 pays out to his beneficiaries. What does this represent? Aleatory. 200 in exchange for 20,000 is aleatory, aleatory, an unequal exchange. So I like to, uh, my memory trick for this one is to be a seesaw uh, uh, going back. Like if you think the scales of justice, they're never balanced. Um, aleatory, aleatory. It's never balanced. It's always wonky. One side is paying a little bit. One side is paying a lot more. So aleatory, aleatory is an unequal exchange. <clears throat> personal just means that the contract is between you and the insurance company. So personal is between me and the insurance company. Um, I, it, that's just all. That's all I mean. So the policy is between you and the insurance company. Now, if you, it's very rare that you can give away your policy to someone else, especially when it becomes property casualty. You can give away your life insurance all, all day long. You could sell your life insurance, that's fine. But when it comes to home and auto, it's very rare that you would give your policy to someone else. Like even if, if I sold my car to you, I'm not giving you my insurance. I would have to cancel my insurance. You would need to write your own. We don't give away um, policies like that. But there may be times where like a husband and wife are married, they both buy, you know, together they buy a homeowner's policy on the house, but it's like under the wife's name because she's the one who called in and then they get a divorce and the husband is keeping the house. They, they won't necessarily rewrite the whole policy, um, but what they will do is they will assign it to the husband. So that's another word that's not typed up here, but assignment is when you assign your policy to someone else. Very rare in the property and casualty world. Um, usually only for like a husband and wife situation like that. But if you, if you're giving your policy to someone else, you're assigning it to them. And sometimes with personal, they say that you, you can't just give your policy away because it's between you and the insurer. All right. Unilateral is known as a one-sided promise. So we're talking about unilateral. Um, and if we go back to the idea of what is consideration on the side of the insured? It's a promise to pay. Consideration on the side of the insured. I messed up there. Consideration on the side of the insurer is promised to pay. 
What is unilateral? One-sided promise. Only one side is making a promise and it's the insurance company. The insurance company is promising that if our house burns down, they will rebuild it. They are promising that if we crash our car, they will pay to fix it. It's a one-sided promise. As a customer, I'm not promising to pay my premium. If I fail to pay my premium, they just cancel the policy, goodbye, move on. If the insurer though, if they fail to pay a claim, guess what I'm doing? I'm suing them. I'm like, no, 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 because the insurance company is legally bound to me because this is a legal contract. So unilateral says it's a one-sided promise and only the insurer is legally bound to do anything because of that promise. So if I fail to pay my premium as a customer, the cancel move on doesn't matter. The insurer pales, fails to pay a valid claim. I can take them to court and sue them and a judge can make them pay. That's what unilateral means. One-sided promise and only the insurer is allowed to, um, only the insurer is legally bound to do anything. Okay. Um, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I had this uh, similar question on uh, New York uh, test. Uh, it was pretty much um, insurer pays the claim, but the insured uh, does not pay the premium. And I was pretty much down to an aleatory or a unilateral. And it was a little bit confusing because it seemed like it was uh, an unequal exchange, but at the same time as a one-sided type of deal. Do you oh, have any more information as to why they paid the claim without the premium? It just pretty much was worded in a way where uh, uh, that was the agreement that the insurer paid the, paid the claim, but the uh, uh, insured did not pay the premium. And it just gave you like options of, it was like adhesion, aleatory, unilateral, and I think it was conditional or something like that. But I'm, I, I don't like 100% remember. I just remember I was down to the last, to the aleatory and unilateral, and I picked unilateral, but I don't know if I got it right. Was it waiver and estoppel? Was that in there? No, no. Okay. It was just those four options. It was, it was very weirdly uh, worded. That's why I thought it was, I was stuck on it for like maybe two or three minutes. And then just... Yeah, if you are stuck on a question and you just don't know, just move on. You're allowed to get, you know, 30 of them wrong, 30% yeah. of them wrong, you know, in most states. Um, oh, Michelle, that's funny because <laughs> that should be in your general, all of these should be, well, oh, some of these words are not necessarily in every text. So I teach to the most common. So there may be one or two words that are not important to you that are to another state. Um, I, I think I kind of said that at the beginning. There may be some things in here that are not on your state exam, but these should be, in, I believe you're in Georgia. Um, yeah, you have insurance terms related concepts, but there may be a couple words you don't have. Yes, Patrice, what's up? You can unmute yourself. That'll be the fastest way to ask your question. Um, okay, so um, I'm more of a, the definitions is fine, but I am more trying to understand the concepts of like, the 30 days, the percentages like, you know, um, a policy with a hundred thousand, um, 
you know, makes a payment of 80,000, like the percentages, um, the numbers, it's more what I need to work on. And also the commissioner, uh, I know, like details, because I went to go take this test like uh, two days ago, and I did pretty good on this. However, when it got to the next part, it was like strictly on what I need, like two years before I renew my license, what is the commissioner's job? Um, how much is this fine? Like, so I need to work on the numbers and the rules and regulations more than the definition. Okay. So that would be like a state law class. I have one of those available for, um, sale. Um, we did, this was, this one was not slated to talk about state law. What state are you in, by the way? I am in Texas. Okay. So yeah, Texas is makes up a, a pretty decent percent. Like, um, I think around 20, not quite 20% of the state exam. So that is pretty important um, for you. And I do have the state regulations class. Today, we're supposed to talk about what to study most tested topics in Q&A. Um, state law is not, it is important for sure. And um, there are a couple of videos I have on YouTube about what to memorize. You do want to memorize like how long your license is good for. And that's different for everybody. You do when is your class? When is the next uh, the state law class? Do you have another one coming? I don't have one on the calendar, but I do have a recorded one available for sale. Okay, definitely. Um, you can keep going. I'll just literally uh, try to email you to purchase the state law class. Yes, and I do have um, um, I do have homeowners class, an auto class, dwelling class. The only things I don't have classes on are commercial because, like I said, you don't really need them to be able to pass the exam. Um, I was definitely, I think we're down to like 45 minutes. Um, I definitely plan to talk about homeowners and dwelling in this class. Not that I, I, I purposely didn't say it because you never know what, en what ends up happening with classes. But um, I fully intended to do that. I'm actually going to send you guys a link for my home and auto class that is paid for. You may already have it if you have the all access, but if you don't, um, I'm going to actually include it in this. So this class will end up just being um, like general insurance terms, which again, for most people, this does represent a very large chunk of your exam um, for, for a lot of people. So that's why I tend to focus on these. So I will, and, and so what you were also asking about was coinsurance. If you have a house for a hundred thousand and you insure less than that and you file a claim, what's gonna happen? That's all coinsurance. And that is gonna be included in the, the homeowner's class that I send you. So I will, um, as, as um, if you're watching this recording, you're not going to get that. <laughs> but if you're sitting here live, um, I will also include my um, homeowners class. And then I will share at the end um, how, to, how to buy my stuff and where all my stuff is, if you don't already know that. Okay, um, we're going to be getting the misrepresentation here in a minute. Um, okay. All right, so where were we? Conditional unilateral one time. Okay, conditional just says that both parties have to have rules and duties. Um, uh, that is, it's conditioned. Like think about the word unconditional love. Unconditional love means you love me no matter what. Conditional says you got rules in place. And if I don't follow the rules, you don't love me anymore. Um, insurance policies are conditional. You have to follow rules or this is over. It, you have rules and I have rules. We both have rules we have to follow or this is over. Um, so, and, and, and it's not just the customer, both. Like one of the rules, for instance, is that like you said, the 30 days, in order to file a claim, you need to file within 30 days in most states. Then the insurance company has 
60 days to pay you in most states. So like you have a rule, I have a rule, we all have rules. When it comes to conditions and conditional, you wanna say, you wanna say um, rules, duties, obligations, ways of behaving, those are all conditions. So rules, duties, obligations, ways of behaving, that's all triggering you to, tr to choose conditions. So if they say, where does the customer go to find the rules? Conditions. Where does the customer go to find their duties? Conditions. Where does the customer go to find out how to act after a claim? Ways of behaving. Conditions. So rules, duties, obligations, ways of behaving are all the trigger words for you to go, oh, that's conditions. They're talking about conditions, conditional. All right, next one, reasonable expectations. Um, this one's kind of a weird one, but this one is just saying that if an agent said you'd be covered for that, you can expect to be covered for that. So they're like, um, you know, the agent implied that you would be covered for this. What does that mean? I can reasonably expect coverage. <clears throat> um, the state law, I'll go over um, how to get the state law class at the end of this class. Uh, indemnity, we talked about that one before, restore the insured to their previous financial condition. Um, representations and misrepresentations and warranties. So these ones can, can be a little bit confusing. So first let's talk about a warranty. A warranty is an absolutely true statement, must be true, is true, has to be true. That is a um, warranty. Warranties are used for things like home and auto. I live at this house, 123 Main Street. That is a fact that I can guarantee it. I live at this house. I drive a 2009 Toyota Prius. That is a fact. There's no wiggle room for it to be wrong. So warranty is used for home and auto where things are factual. Now, if you lie about the warranty, you are voiding the policy. So if you're, what was supposed to be your warranty is false, you have lied to the insurance company and they can void your insurance. So a warranty must be true, is true, has to be true. And if it's not true, then you are um, guilty of fraud, concealment, whatever, and they can void the insurance. Um, now, what is a representation? Representations are used for life and health. And this is where you can't speak in facts and guarantees like, on a life or health application for insurance, they're gonna ask you, do you have cancer? Well, as far as I know, no. Is it possible that there's a tumor somewhere in my body? Yes, it is possible. So with life and health applications, they can't have warranties because you can't guarantee that there's nothing going on inside your body when we don't have systems to absolutely know what is going inside our body, okay? So a representation is, I believe it to be true. I think it's true to the best of my knowledge it's true, but it might not be true. That is representation. So I think it's true to the best of my knowledge is true. I believe it to be true, but it's possible that I could be wrong. So if they say, do you have cancer? And I put no. And then I, I buy the policy, they issue me the insurance. Two months later, I, I go to the doctor, crazy headaches tumor in the brain based on the size it's been growing for the last six months. Well, shoot, I bought my insurance two months ago and I told them I didn't have cancer when I did. Are they gonna cover it? Yes, because to the best of your knowledge at that time, they didn't have um, 
cancer to the best of your knowledge. And so they will still cover it. So that's a representation. I believe it to be true. I think it's true to the best of my knowledge is true, but it might not be true. Where a warranty must be true, has to be true, absolutely true. And that's the difference between those two. Representation, I think it's true. I believe it to be true, but it might not be true. Warranty must be true, is true, has to be true. And if not, you void the policy. If a representation isn't true, it's not voided. It's just, oops, you didn't know that you had a tumor. Okay, now we know. Let's clean it up. Okay. Um, now, hey, Melissa. Yes. So I see on the Michigan exam, these four that you are kind of talking about are getting into right now with the um, representation, misrepresentation, warranty, concealment, and fraud. I know you're moving into that, but my problem is the question usually goes something like someone's doing an application and um, they say they've never been in an accident or they say they never had a ticket, but their son had a ticket. Which one does that fall under? Like, is, is it that they concealed it? But I think it would only be concealment if they knew and didn't put it on there, but it wouldn't be fraud or would it be fraud because they actually knew the son had a ticket and didn't put on there. So that's where I'm kind of getting a little bit confused when it comes to these. In order for the answer to be concealment, you need to see withholding or hiding. They withheld the information. They hid the information. Then it's concealment. Fraud is generally, you know, you outright lied. You attempted to deceive, you're trying to deceive. If, if the question is saying, they asked, do you have a ticket and the customer didn't understand that you meant you and your family and your son and your thing, then that's just, that's a whoopsies. <laughs> so I guess it depends on more of the question, but in order for it to be concealment, it has to be withholding or hiding. Does that help a little bit? <laughs> a little bit. I, I feel like if you know you're honestly saying the wrong answer, it sounds like concealment to me, but I get what you're saying. Whereas, because it also sounds like fraud. So, that the customer, can I, can I say something? Oh, I'm sorry. It is, maybe this is, maybe this will help. Is concealment like lying by omission and fraud is you're just outright lying? Right. Concealment is a lie of omission by withholding or hiding. And okay, fraud is just know. an outright lie. Yeah. Okay. It, the thing is, is that concealment is a form of fraud. You have, you have fraud, this, this represents, we haven't even talked about it. Fraud is deceiving or lying or cheating the insurance company. And um, concealment is withholding or hiding. You're deceiving the insurance company by withholding or hiding. They go together, right? But concealment is specific to withholding or hiding. You're, you're trying to conceal what you're doing. You know, I don't want you to see this. I don't want you to know this. That's, that's concealment. Um, whereas fraud is just, I'm trying to deceive you. I'm trying to um, lie about something, but not necessarily withholding or hiding. So I know okay. it gets weird, but when you see with hiding or holding, that's when you choose concealment. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, Sonia, they will, they will use the words 
with uh, hiding, uh, hiding or withholding or or some some sort of concealing means you like think concealer. You're trying to conceal the fact that you've got bags under your eyes. You're trying to hide it. Don't look at. Don't look at it. I don't want you to see it. That's what concealing is doing. You're trying to prevent them from even knowing about it, from seeing it. Whereas fraud would just be like an outright lie. Kind of weird, <laughs> but that's how it works. <clears throat> now, um, with a misrepresentation, this is simply an untrue statement. So this is this is where the information is known and it is available, but maybe you forgot, you misunderstood, you don't understand the question. That can be a misrepresentation. So this so this would be like, do you? Um, yeah, I mean, there was actually, I've seen a, an exam question that said, you know, Carlos um, was addicted to drugs for a long time. He was in and out of rehabs. He had a lot of medical stuff done. He He's okay now. He goes to buy insurance. When they ask him about his medical history, he forgets most of it, doesn't put it down on his application. He later files a claim. What will they cover? All of it. He didn't try to deceive them. He, he literally just didn't have a memory of it because he was on drugs the whole time. So he would still be covered. He would still be okay. So um, 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 it's, it's only an intentional, purposeful misrepresentation that becomes fraud. But if it's simply, I forgot, I don't understand, I don't get it, then it would just be um, a misrepresentation. An intentional misrepresentation, though, would be actual fraud. Um, uh, Jeff, I believe you're asking about material, material. I don't, I didn't put it in these notes because I, sometimes I focus too much on material when it's not even asked about very much. So I don't even put on the notes, but there also is something called material misrepresentation. And the thing you want to know about material is that it's withholding or hiding. So, um, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's concealment. Material is I would have made a different decision. So if the insurance company asks you a question and you gave them the wrong information, whether on purpose or accident, whatever, and that piece of information, had they known the truth, they would have changed the policy, offered a different coverage, offered a different premium. That's material to them. A piece of information that would have changed their mind would have caused a different premium, a different policy, a different coverage. They may have even declined you completely because the information, that is what material means. So when I think of material, I think of altering, it would have altered their decision. So think of a piece of material. I wanna take it from a, a long skirt to a short skirt. I'm gonna alter it. I'm changing my mind from a long skirt to a short skirt. I'm gonna alter the material. A different decision is being made based on this. So material is I'm altering my decision. I'm, I'm changing my mind. That is, that's what material. But I won't go further into that because we don't talk about that very much. Okay, um, now we have, so we talked about concealer, we talked about fraud. Okay, so that represents um, general um, insurance. And now we can move into PNC basics. Uh, or we, we have two options here. So I can start jumping into talking about some of this, or if you all have a bunch of questions, I do want to be available to answer questions. 
So if there's any other questions that you guys have and you want to spend time, like if you say, Melissa, show us the math problem, I'll do the math problem right now. Let me know what it is y'all want because I can just, you can have these PNC notes. You can see the definition of them. Um, and if you have the all access pass, it's not different from what I'm teaching, but now you have me live. So is there anything you want me to do live? Okay, Barb says, show the math. <laughs> we could do the math. <clears throat> math, math, math. Yes. Okay. Let's do the math. The math. Oh, where is my? You said we will receive this in an email, right? Yes. So whatever email you used to um, sign up for this, I will be emailing you the recording and the notes that I sent you. Okay. Will we be getting the notes tonight? I'm sorry to ask that. If you click them in the, the, the chat box, yes. I don't plan to send out the email until I have the recording available. Yeah, I'm, I'm just asking that specific question because I'm taking my first test tomorrow. Okay, so hang out at the end, Michelle. I know you're scared to click the link because of your Zoom. So stay with me to the end and we'll make sure you get it. One question from the other PNC video that you had sold. What's the question? What's the question? How are these notes different from the other video, the PNC basics that you had for sale? I did purchase those. Are they similar? They're the same. They're the same. Um, I have. Um, and my notes are really available for anybody. There's not necessarily for purchase. If you ask me, can I have your notes? I send them to you. Um, but the video I had also purchased with the, um, I don't know, it was one of your other videos. Yeah, if you purchase yeah, a general purchase insurance or PNC basics class, they should be in there. And if they're not, they're they're not, not happy, but you're going to be getting them anyway. But yeah, I don't have a yeah, bunch, I don't of, have a bunch of, of notes. You know, they're all, I, I give them all away is what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay, I hope that answers your question. Okay, let's do the math. Okay, so now this math is not it's not going to make or break you and what i mean by that is, is if you don't know how to do the math you're going to be okay but if you know how to do the math you can definitely get yourself a couple of points and and feel like less anxiety that's okay michelle go ahead <clears throat> okay so the biggest math in this um on this exam is going to be the co-insurance so co-insurance What is coinsurance? If the idea of insurance is that my house burns down and you rebuild it, how much money should you be insuring that house for? As much money as it would take to rebuild that house. And that's called insurance to value. So insurance to value says, if you have a three bedroom, two bathroom house that costs $250,000 to build, you need to cover that house for $250,000. That is insurance to value. Now, most uh, claims, homeowners claims are $25,000 or less, meaning that it's very rare for someone's entire house to burn down. But they are asking us to cover the entire cost of our house, even though the majority of us will never ever have to pay a claim or never have a claim for our whole house burning down. 
So insurance companies are like, listen, fine. If you don't want to cover 100% of the rebuilds, that's fine. Can you at least carry 80%? If you carry at least 80% of what it would be to rebuild the house, we will be happy, we'll be okay. And as long as you do that, claims are paid as normal. So for instance, what I'm saying is, let's say that you have a house and we're gonna use very nice rounded even numbers here. Let's say that this house is $100,000 to rebuild. And, and you say, well, I don't, and the premium for that is like, you know, too much. You say, I don't wanna pay that much premium. My house is not likely to burn down. They're gonna say, well, can you at least carry 80%, which would be $80,000. As long as you do that, they will pay every claim like normal. They won't even care that it's 80%. They'll just pay it like normal. $5,000 pay claim, $5,000 payout. $20,000 claim, $20,000 payout. As long as you are within the 80%. 80% of the rebuild. So 80% of the rebuild. To build the house from the ground up, Whatever that costs, your insurance policy should be at least 80% of whatever that value is. And as long as it's at least 80%, they will pay every claim like normal. It's when you start covering your house for less than 80 that they do coinsurance. And coinsurance says you are cheap. You are cheap. You're carrying less than 80 we will be cheap. We will be cheap when we pay the claim. Being cheap is covering your house for less than 80%. And so when they pay the claim, they will pay less than 80% for the claim or less than the, the full claim amount, not 80, sorry, sorry, I said that wrong. So what they're gonna ask you when it comes to coinsurance is they're gonna ask you a couple of things. Why are you not moving? Move, move. Sorry, my whiteboard is giving me struggles. Oh my gosh. Stop. There we go. Oh, I got to use two fingers. That's what it is. Okay. So what are they going to ask you with coinsurance? One, they're going to make sure, you know, is the insured within 80%? Is the insured covering at least 80% of, and they will either use the word replacement or rebuild. Same thing. Is the insured covering at least 80% or rebuild? Some of your co-insurance questions will end right there. You confirm that they're covering 80% and they pay the claim like normal. Some questions will make you go into step two which is the coinsurance equation. So is the insured covering at least 80% of replacement or rebuild? You're either gonna have a yes or you're gonna have a no. If it is yes, then they will pay the claim as normal. Pay the full claim, okay? If they're carrying at least 80%, they will pay the full claim. If the answer is no, then they're gonna do step two, step number two. 
Step number two is the coinsurance equation. Do the coinsurance equation. Do the coinsurance equation. And the coinsurance equation is this. What did, I want you to be thicker. So the, the coinsurance co co equation. The coinsurance equation is did carry divided by should carry. And when I say carry, what I mean is, what is the amount of coverage? How much coverage are they carrying? So what did I carry versus what should I carry? And the should carry is the 80% because they're okay with 80%. Carry at least 80%. Then we're gonna multiply that times the loss and that will equal the claim payout. Okay, so we're gonna do a couple of these as examples so that you feel comfortable and confident with these. So again, let's recap a little bit. Insurance to value says you should insure your house for as much as it would cost for us to rebuild it. That's insurance to value. They're cool as long as it's 80%. Carry at least 80% and we will pay every claim like normal. Because think about it for a minute. If, if this, <clears throat> I have not talked this much. Kids are in my throat, really scratchy right now. I used to teach eight hours a day for five days a week. <laughs> I have not done that in a while. <clears throat> okay, what was I doing? Ooh. Oh, okay. So let's say this, God, be thicker. Why are you so small? <clears throat> so let's say that this is my house. This is a hundred percent of the house. This represents, oh, let's get a different color. This blue part represents 80%. Essentially what the insurance company is saying is like, look, you're asking us to cover this whole house, but you're only covering this much worth you're leaving this other 20% uncovered if you think about it like that. But they're cool with it. They're cool if it's at least 80%. Coinsurance comes in when someone says, well, I have this full house and let's say the rebuild is 100,000, but I'm only gonna carry, so 100,000 would be the rebuild. I'm only gonna carry uh, 50,000. You're basically saying, I'm only covering half the house. If you're only carrying 50, but the rebuild is 100, you're only covering half the house. And if you were to make a claim with a big old fire, is it fair to make them, the insurance, pay the entire claim when you're only covering half the house? Not fair. That's where the coinsurance comes in. This is the, I'm gonna be cheap, you are cheap, I'm gonna be cheap. If you're so cheap to only cover half of your house, we will be cheap when we pay the claim. And they use the math problem to determine 
how much of the claim they're going to cover because they won't cover all of it. You're not covering all of the house. They shouldn't have to cover all of the claim. That's what coinsurance is about. <clears throat> and you do the coinsurance equation when they're carrying less than 80. So let's look at a couple examples. Let's say that they said Bob has a house with the current replacement at 200,000. Bob decided to carry coverage A at 150,000. Uh, one day he had a fire that resulted in $30,000 of damage. How much did the insurer pay? How much did the insurer pay? Okay. So you have replacement. And this is going to be like a big wordy question. So I'm going, to, I'm going to say it again so you guys can capture the question. Bob bought a house and the current replacement is $200,000. Bob decided to carry coverage A at $150,000. He experienced a fire that resulted in $30,000 of damage. How much will the insurer pay? So the first thing, and these, this is the only pieces of information you need to know. So they might give you other numbers just to throw you off. I don't, the only numbers you care about, replacement price, how much is it to rebuild? That's replacement is rebuild. How much did they carry on their coverage? And how much is the claim? That's all we need to know. So when you get a coinsurance question, everybody should get like a piece of paper or a little whiteboard. When you take your state exam, you can write down those things, write down those things that you can see the question you say, oh, this is coinsurance. What's replacement? What's carry? What's claim? Those are the things I need to know. And, th and think of the claim as the loss. That might be the better word for it. Claim, loss, same, same, tomato, tomato. Okay, so the thing that we need to do with this question is we need to find, we need to find 80% or say, what is 80%? of 200,000. Now the majority of you will get a calculator and you're gonna be able to pop up your calculator. Where are you? You're gonna be able to have a basic little calculator like this. And when you need to find 80% of something, this is the equation that, that you use. So you're going to do, uh, you're going to put in the rebuild number because the numbers can change. You're going to hit the multiplication sign. You're going to put 0 0.80 and then you're going to hit equal. This is the equation to find 80% of something. Put in the rebuild number, the replacement price of the house, multiply it times 0 0.80 equal, and that will be 80%. So in our example, it's going to be 200,000 times 0 0.80. And we put that into our calculator. 200,000 times 0 0.80 equal 160,000. So 80% 80, 80 of 200,000 is 160,000. Okay. He decided to carry 150. Is he within 
No, he is less than 80%. 80% is 160. If, if, if it said he carried 160, the answer would be they paid 30,000. Because as long as you're carrying 80%, they will pay the claim in normal. If you're not carrying 80%, then they begin to do the coinsurance equation. So for our example, since he carried 150, that means we're gonna need to move into step two. Because remember what we said, step one, is the insured covering at least 80%? Yes or no? Yes, pay the claim in full. The answer would be 30,000. Ours is no though, because he's not within 80%. He's covering 150 instead of 160. So then we're gonna have to do step two. And step two says, do the coinsurance equation, which is did carry divided by should carry times the loss equal the claim payout. So let's go ahead and do that for our example here. So in our equation with him, we would say what um, it's did carry. He did carry 150,000. That's what he carried. That's how much coverage he had. We're going to divide that by how much he should have carried, which is the 80%. Should have is the 80%. So we're going to put 160 down here. A lot of people will make the mistake and put 200 down here. You, it's not the full replacement. It's the minimum of 80. Because as long as he carries 80, they're fine. It's when you go less than 80 that they have a problem. So 150,000 divided by 160 times the loss, which is the 30,000, will equal the claim payout. And again, you get your handy dandy calculator, clear it out because it's probably too dumb and stupid to handle multiple equations. And you also have to take this one step at a time too. You're not gonna plug this whole equation in and hit equal. You gotta go one step at a time. The first step is 150,000 divided by 160,000 equal. Hit the equal sign. Don't just go into the multiplication. It won't work. They're, the calculators are too simple for that. So you're gonna go 150 divided by 160 equal sign in the calculator. Then you're gonna do times 30,000. Ah, so times 30,000 equal 28,125, 25. That will be the claim payout. And that's the answer choice you would need to choose out of ABCD is the 28,125. Now in this instance, he is very close to the 80%. He's only $10,000 off. So the difference between 30,000 and 28 isn't so bad, but the lower you get after 80%, the more drastic the claim payout will be. So the, the less you're carrying, the less the claim payout will be is basically, you know what I'm saying. So sometimes the questions will just be you checking for 80%. So if we had another question that said, you, um, we have an insured whose replacement is 300,000. He decided to carry um, 280,000 
and he had a claim for 10,000. Remember, step one, what is 80% of 300,000? I do 300,000 times 0 0.80 equal, get the handy dandy calculator, 300,000 times 0 0.80 equal 240,000. So he is within 80% because he's carrying 280, which is way more. So your answer would be 10. They will pay 10. He's carrying at least 80. He's carrying more than 80. They will pay the full claim. And your problem stops there. You don't need to do the coinsurance equation. You, he's covering 80 at least. Problem is done. Okay, only some of them will, some, you're gonna have a mixed bag. Some will be checking the 80% and being done because they are within 80%. Some will be, they're not within 80%. So then I have to do step two, which is the coinsurance equation. So let's do another one so that we can just have the practice of it. So using our numbers, since we already know. So let's say that, oh gosh, why? You're supposed to be back, get back. There we go. So let's say that replacement is 300,000. And let's say that he decided to carry um, 210,000. And, and I'm purposely choosing one that's less than 80. That's why we're doing, because we want to practice that one. That one is the one that involves a lot more math than just the 80%. So he decided to carry 210. And let's say that the claim or the loss is 50,000, okay? So we already did 80%. Remember we did 300,000 times 0 0.80 equal, and we found out that it was, what was it? <laughs> 240. So we already know that it's 240. We already did step one. It's 240,000. So, he is carrying less than 240, he's carrying 210, which means we need to do the coinsurance equation because he is not within 80%. If he was within 80%, pay the total claim, 50,000 paid. Less than 80%, do the coinsurance equation. So our coinsurance equation is did carry, he did carry 210,000. He should have carried, remember the 80% is the should. He should carry 240. We multiply that times the loss oh, of 50,000. And then that will equal the claim payout. So again, we whip out our, our little handy dandy calculator. 210,000 um, divided by 240,000 equal times 50,000 equal 43. So not, not so bad. So not terribly off, but the, the customer would be responsible for the other seven, the other 7,000. So you're on your own. You were cheap, we're gonna be cheap. Sorry, you gotta pay for it now. 
So that's the thing with coinsurance is you may you may pay a lower premium, but when you file a claim and they're they're missing seven thousand dollars because you didn't carry enough, you're gonna feel it. So you might as well carry eighty percent. And there's a lot of insurers that will refuse to cover less than than eighty percent. Okay, so that was another example. I do have a um, coinsurance uh, video on YouTube. And then, like I said, I'm going to send y'all the homeowners um, class as well, and that that will have coinsurance in there too. Um, okay, so now if you have any other questions, let me know. I'm going to go back through. I know I missed the question about conditional. Um, someone said to repeat the words for conditional. Duty. Hey, Melissa. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I don't know if this I think this is way different from what I was thinking what you just did the co-insurance was great but what's the one where they say insurance a has this much insurance b has this much and then you're supposed to figure out how much each one of them is going to cover because that's yep. the one I need that I saw on the exam you got it okay that one is called pro rad Okay. Yeah, I definitely don't understand. Pro and pro rata is about a fair share, a fair share. Okay. Okay. What this means is, let's say that I have um, a building, and I want to insure it for a total of two hundred thousand. But when I call an insurance company, there's various reasons why they may or may not sure the full value. Whatever. So let's say that I have company A who is going to insure this building for 150,000. And then I have company B and they're gonna insure it for 50,000 because I wanted a total of 200, but for whatever reason, I couldn't get one company to do it. So I got two separate companies, totally fine. No rules against it, we're cool. The only thing that's, that breaks the rules is if, let's say I had a $10,000 claim Oops, I want to turn that purple or whatever. If I had a $10,000 claim in this one building, should I get $10,000 from company A and $10,000 from company B? Uh-uh, no. Remember I said insurance companies are friends. They're going to talk to each other. They're going to know that they're both covering this building and they're going to know that you're filing a claim to both of them. And pro rata, and it's actually in the insurance contract, it's called other insurance, where... It's in the policy and it says, if you have more than one policy covering the same risk, each company will pay a fair share, pro rata. So what is the fair share? Let's just look at an example. If this building were to be split up equally in four ways, so we're splitting up this building equally in four ways, company A, Company A is covering three of those squares, 150,000. Company B is only covering one. Should, and, and so what this is telling us is company A should pay for three-fourths of the claim because they're covering three-fourths of the building. Company B, B should pay one-fourth of the claim. Now, we're not going to do it this way. This is only a visual. You don't have to understand fractions and you don't need to draw visuals. This is just to help us understand it, that what the fair share means. This is how they get the fair share. If this whole building represents 200,000, 
That means that this square is 50, this square is 50, this square is 50, this square is 50. If we broke up the building into equal parts of 200,000. And if company A is covering 150, they're covering one, two, three squares of the building. And company B is covering one square of the building at 50. Okay, this is just a visual to help us understand. When you get on the state exam, though, you're just going to have to do the actual math problem. So here's how the math problem looks. They're going to give you a problem just like this. Company A is covering the building for 150. Company B is covering 50. You have a $10,000 fire claim. It's not, why is it not, it's not showing up very well? Let me turn this black too. a little bit better. Okay. Um, so let's say, so company A, 150, company B, 50, $10,000 fire. And the question will be something like this. How much did company A pay? Okay. Of the $10,000 fire. Now, if you do know math, what is three fourths? I think it's like 75. Boom. You know the problem. If you're not that math inclined, then you need to do the equation. So here's how the equation looks. When you're doing a pro rata equation, a fair share equation, it looks very um, similar to the co-insurance equation. Um, you have a division, you have a multiplication, you have an equal. But this one is, you're gonna put company, oh gosh not showing up very well. You're gonna put the company you're looking for on top. So how much does company A pay? So company A is gonna go on top. Company A plus B is gonna go on the bottom. You multiply that times the loss and that will be the payout for the company on top. Now, it's not always company A on top. Like if they said company B, you're going to have to put company B on top. Whatever company you're looking for is the one that will go on top. It could even be C or D or F or XYZ or Susie's Salon, whatever word they use. The one you're looking for is the one that will go on top. But what do I do when it's asking for both? You're going to do this equation twice. Oh, or okay. do a subtraction problem. Okay. So if they say, what does company A pay? We're, right now we'll focus on that one. So we do company A divided by company A plus B times the loss, which is the, um, the fire damage, will equal the payout for the company on top. So let's do that one for our problem. So we have company A, which is 100 and, gosh, ugh. I want my marker to be fatter and is being so skinny. I don't know what's doing. All right. We have company A, which is 150,000 divided by A plus B, which is going to be 200,000. We're going to multiply that times the $10,000 fire. And that will be the payout for company A. So just like before, we've got our handy dandy calculator. We do 150,000 divided by so company A divided by all the companies added together. If they give you company A, B, C, D, E, F, all the companies added together goes on the bottom. 
no matter how many companies they give you, add them up all together, put them on the bottom. The company I'm looking for on top, divided by all the companies added together on the bottom, times the loss will equal the payout for the company on top. So 150,000 divided by 200,000 equals, remember, hit equal because the calculator can't handle the full thing. Then you do your next step times 10,000 times 10,000 equal 7,500. So you would go company A is going to pay 7,500. Now you have two choices here. If they were to ask what is company A and B pay, you can do this one of two ways. One, you can redo the problem and do it with B on top. 50,000, because that's company B divided by all the companies added together times the 10,000 equal company B payout. So 50,000 divided by 200,000 equal times, because remember, we got to do the equal part right here. Then you do the times 10,000 times 10,000. Equal 2,500. So that's one way to do it. Or you can go, well, the claim is 10,000. And if company B pay or company A pays 7,500, what's left over is the 2,500. 10,000 divided by 7,500 equal 2,500. So if, if you either just do the equation twice, if they're asking for both companies or however many they're asking for, they, they may even say company A, company B, company C, we're all covering one building. How much did company A and B pay? So you got to do the equation twice to figure it out. Or if it's only two companies, you can just subtract company A from the claim amount. So if the total claim is 10,000 and company A paid 7,500, all that's left is 25. So that's what, that's what company B will pay. So no matter how many companies you have, remember that you're gonna do the company I'm looking for on top. The company I'm looking for on top. Company I am looking for, the number, whatever, divided by all the companies added together. Times the loss will equal the claim payout for the one on top. And then I just keep doing that as many times as I need to to get all my answers. So it might be company A on top divided by A plus B plus C times the loss. And then I also have to do B on top divided by A plus B plus C times the loss. And then I'll be able to choose company A will pay 7,500 and B will pay 2,500 and boom, there's my answer. Does that make sense? I think, I believe I also have a pro rat yes. on YouTube as well. No, that helped. Thank you. Perfect. Okay. All right. So right now I'm going to go to the chat, answer any questions I missed there. Um, add any other questions you may need uh, and or just unmute yourself once I finish the, the chat scroll. Okay. Can you repeat the trigger words for condition? Conditions are rules duties, 
obligation, ways of behaving. Conditions are rules, duties, obligations, ways of behaving. If I hear one of those four words, if I read one of those four words in the questions, I'm looking for conditions as the answer. Okay. Math, 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 formula, formula. Okay, um, Richie, I'm I'm an insurance company, won't cover ride share, and the insured says they don't, but then changes their mind and decides to start Uber DoorDash without telling the insurance company. Is that considered material or concealment? Um if when you fill out the initial application, you're not doing rideshare and you say, I'm not doing rideshare, that you're not lying. If you later do rideshare, that's not, that's not material unless they, I mean, if you, it's weird because unless they specifically ask you, are you doing Lyft and Uber? And then you say, no, when you are, that's concealment. But if you end up doing it later, not realizing that you need to update your insurance, which you definitely do, and there's now rideshare endorsements, that's kind of a different story. Um, so I'm not sure if it was word how exactly it was worded or anything. Um, but it, it, for that question, I would I would go with if 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 exactly what you're saying is aligned with the question, I'd probably go with concealment. Although I really don't like the whole change their mind thing. That's not truly concealing. So I'm not sure. I feel like I would need to know more information for that one. Um, Sonia, for South Carolina, is PC one exam or separate? I think you could take them together. Some states say you have to take just, um, just property and then just casualties. Some will let you take them together in one test. And I'm pretty sure that South Carolina allows for one full test, which I would always recommend. I would never encourage anybody to split property and casualty some states force you to and i'm sorry but if you could take both of them together definitely take both of them together south carolina does allow you to take them together so i would take them together if you can um will they throw in like the practice tests the minus and standard deductible um i'm not sure what you're referring to jeff when you talked about that but if you're talking about like a coinsurancy question, they usually will say, don't think about the deductible. Don't worry about the deductible. So if they, because because technically you have to pay a deductible for pretty much every claim. So when they say, how much will the insurer pay? Technically it should be minus the deductible, but they don't really ever ask you about that. If they do say that the deductible is $1,000, then you would need to subtract it from the total claim payout. But usually they'll say, not considering a deductible, how much will the insurer pay? So a lot of the time they won't include, don't, unless they mention it, don't worry about the deductible with coinsurance questions. Well, like in my Excel um, practice um, quizzes, one of them was like, um, including the applicable deductible, you know, how much would the insurer or the insurer pay? And then you had to do the co-insurance equation and then get the amount and then pick the amount that was correct with the subtracted deductible. Okay, yes. If they say it, then you've got to include it and you've got to subtract the deductible. Yes. But they don't tell you what the deductible is though. 
Well, then if they don't tell you that, then you can't do it and don't worry about it. <laughs> they most likely, they, honestly, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong necessarily, but I would say most of the time they say ignoring the deductible or however they word it is usually trying to say, don't think about the deductible. They might word it weird, but if they don't give you a number for the deductible, you can't do it anyway. Unless they say, do they say standard deductible? Yeah. Well, that's 250. <laughs> so okay. that would be a test question. So homeowners in dwelling has a standard deductible of 250. In most states, I believe Michigan has, someone has a $500. Virginia. I think Virginia has a $500. But standard deductible for homeowners in dwelling is 250. Okay. So they they might just be asking you to memorize that. If they say if they do have a standard deductible and you have to include that in the question, then remember that it's 250. Okay. In most states, double check your text, your coursework. Everyone is every state's a little bit different. I believe it's 250 here too. Okay, perfect. Um, Michelle, installation floater is used to ensure um, an installation floater is used to ensure something that is being installed. So imagine, let's say, so I, one of my, one of my um, jobs as a school teacher, I was in a four-story building and they had huge air conditioners on top. An installation floater is when that building, let's say the owner of that building is going to replace the AC unit. They're going to take out the old, they're going to have to use a crane to remove the air conditioning and then use a crane to put the new one on. The installation floater is what you would purchase to cover the air conditioner unit as it's being delivered to you and as it's being lifted on the crane and installing it into the building. You have to insure it before it's, because your, your, your property policy, your commercial policy, your CPP, your BOP, whatever, it will insure anything that's part of the building. But an air conditioning unit that you bought in another state that is being delivered to you and that has to be lifted on a crane and then installed is not covered by your building yet until it becomes a part of your building. So until that item is officially part of your building, you use an installation floater to cover. In all my PT tests, there was workers' compensation, which is the 1.5 rating and workers' compensation average. Okay, workers' compensation is state-specific, very state-specific. And every state has very different numbers. So I have no idea is my point. <laughs> um, 1.5 rating. I don't even know what one, I don't, every state is so weird. I will tell you though, Astrid, that workers comp is not going to make or break you. I know that you may like, all I remember was workers comp questions. That's probably because you don't know it. We tend to remember the thing that scares us. So a lot of people say, I remember all the questions were about workers, all the questions about commercial. I'm like, no, they weren't. Look at your exam breakdown. They can't have possibly have been. We only remember the ones that terrify us. Workers' comp is not usually the ones you need to be able to secure a pass. So I generally avoid workers' comp in general. Uh, Michelle, options for the question all, oh, wait. Oh, for the installation floater. Uh, yeah, it. that was, that was something else. That was, yeah. Yeah. You already answered my question, but yeah. I do have another question. Yeah. So you I see how it, do you see how it's C? Yeah. Appliance that will become part of the permanent building. That's the installation. Yes. I wanted to point that out for yes. everybody. Put the options in the chat box. So she asked the question, what is the installation floater? And then she put the answer choices. 
So if you want to see that, the answer is C, an appliance that is intended to become part of the permanent building. Great job. Okay, let me okay. finish the scroll. Room. Okay. If the insurer had known the truth or additional info, they would have issued a different policy. That is known as, Kathy, that is material. They would have made a different decision. They would have altered their decision. They would have made a different policy, a different coverage, different whatever. So that's material, Kathy. So it's just material. I thought there was another word after it. It's just material, just called material. Material uh, misrepresentation. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The key word there is material, which is altering the material. You're altering the material. You're making a different decision. All right, uh, Michelle, what was your other question? Are you there? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I was on mute. Okay. This question right here. A tow truck was stolen from the insured's premises. The insured has loss of use coverage on his commercial auto policy. How much will the insured be able to collect from the coverage if he's unable to use the tow truck in his operation for 40 days. I know this is going into commercial, but this is messing me all up. Okay, so let's talk about, and I, I may, um, this requires remembering a, remembering a number, and the commercial numbers may be a little bit different, than um, regular auto numbers. I'm gonna use regular auto numbers because those are the ones I would encourage you to memorize anyway, but I can still answer this question. I'm just gonna use okay. the auto numbers. So right, thank you. is saying if, if he has a tow truck, you know, for his business to tow things, he is making money every time he tows something, right? If he cannot use the tow truck because it was stolen, that's what the loss of use is. And insurance companies will pay for that. If your car was, if your tow truck, because this is a commercial policy that we're talking about, if your truck that you use to do business is stolen, they will pay you the loss of use to not be able to use that car. Now, um, in personal auto, in personal auto, I know you asked me commercial, but in personal auto, yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. When you have um, loss of use on your personal auto, they're going to call it transportation expenses. Because in in commercial, you're making money, so it's loss of use. If it's regular auto, you can't use your car, so you need other transportation. So it's called transportation expenses. If you had transportation expenses, they will pay you money. They will pay you $20 a day up to 600 for transportation expenses. You got to get a bus ticket. You got to get a lift. You got to get an Uber. You get up to $20 a day for a total of 600 max. Okay. So, and this is, this is countrywide. Everyone's got the same numbers. I've never seen a state that's different. 2,600, 2,600, 2,600, okay? So on your personal auto, you have transportation expenses. If your car is stolen in the repair shop because of an accident, as long as it's a valid claim, like not, oh, it broke down. You don't get transportation 
defense is for breakdown. It's, it's for a claim like crashing or being stolen. You get up to $20 a day for a total of 600. Now they have a couple of rules though. If the car is stolen, which in your example it was, you have to wait 48 hours to start collecting your $20. So basically you're saying the first two days of your car being stolen is not covered. Then after that, you get $20 a day. So let's say, I think you said 40 days, but let's say that the car was stolen. I did. Gone for a total of one, two, three, four, what is this? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, okay? If it was stolen, you have to wait 48 hours, which is two days. Then you start earning $20 a day until the car is found, whatever. So, and but, but if it was just in an accident, if it was just a collision claim, so if it's a collision and it's in the repair shop, you have to wait um, 24 hours. So if it's just a collision, it's just a crash, it's in a repair shop, you gotta wait 24 hours. So again, in our case, if it was five, one, two, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, you would get no money on day one, but then you'd get 20 for day two, 20 for day three, 20 for day four, 20 for day five, for a total of 20, 40, 60, 80. So same instance, if my car was stolen, I would get $60 of T&E, transportation expenses. And if it was in an accident, I would get $80 because I only have to subtract one day. Okay. So in your case, for that question, I don't know what the commercial numbers are. I, don't, I think it's more than 20 and 600. And I'm not sure if they have the 48 hours in the 24, but I think they do. But it might be a little bit longer. Okay. I'll double I'll double check that this evening. But does that, that make sense to you? Yes, yes, it okay. does. Makes perfect. perfect sense. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Because um, question in the yes, awesome. Um, or in addition to like rental coverage. So th that's a whole other thing. So this is T&E, which is transportation expenses. Rental reimbursement allows you to rent a car. And they don't really ask about that one very much at all. But in order to get rental reimbursement at a minimum, you, I think you have, I think if, if they do ever ask about it, you have to have both collision and other than collision. You gotta have both coverages to get rental. <clears throat> but T&E, you can get, you can, you can get, they don't require, I don't know. It does. They rarely have ever asked for rental. Most people have rental on their policy, um, but T and E transportation expenses. You want to remember the 2,600, 48 hours stolen, 24 hour collision, waiting period before you can start collecting your twenty dollars. The other one to remember is towing and labor. Towing and labor. This one is twenty five per breakdown. Most, most states, pretty sure. I don't know that I've ever seen another number. So if your car breaks down and you've got towing and labor, they will pay up to $25 to help with the repair of the tow truck, which it was stolen, so we can't help you. <laughs> Back to that previous example. Okay. Um, 
Steve, I'm in California and how much of the exam includes code and ethics? I'm gonna make this real lovely for you. None of it. <laughs> in California, you have a requirement to complete the PNC course and you have a 12 hour ethics requirement. The 12 hour ethics will not be included on your exam. Only what's in your PNC course will be what's on the exam. The 12 hour of ethics is just proving that you spent 12 hours reading it. It will, if, if they do ask you a code and ethics question, it will be included in your course, in your main PNC course. So that extra 12 hours of stuff you have to do in California, not tested. So that's lovely. That's nice. Okay, any other questions? Last chance. I just need to make sure I can get the documents that I was afraid to download. Perfect. Yes. Okay. So, does anybody else have any other question before I help? Oh, oh, oh. One question. Yes. One question. Yes. I was kind of on topic. I wanted to know um, a, a little, uh, uh, one question about life insurance. Uh -huh. and, and that is, um, what um, are the health regulations for insurance in Michigan? Okay, wait, hang on one second. Let me um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks. Okay, say that again. I missed it because my brain was somewhere else. Sorry, hey, I'm sorry. I, I just got one question kind of off topic. I just want to know what was the health regulations for Michigan? Health regulations for Michigan? Are you doing the property and casualty exam? Yes. And there's a health regulations section? Oh, no. I was um, reading the other book for the, uh, the life. I have had life with Leo. Okay. So one, okay. one of the things that's cool is when you say regulations, I'm thinking state regulations, state law. Whether you're taking the life and health exam or the property and casualty, state law is state law. So if you already did okay. like health and you already studied state law when you take the property and casualty it'll be the same question okay okay so it's one of the same okay thank you yes you're welcome okay and then um you guys also asked let me no not that not that don't cancel oh my god Share. oh i stopped sharing screen. okay i'm good okay sorry sorry um you guys asked where to get my stuff so this um right now and i'll put this link in the chat box so right now i am i am i got links all over the place but i'm getting more and more organized as we go on okay and the and the boo is helping my number one fan he's helping me get way more organized um excel yes i highly recommend excel richie just said a study for excel if you buy an excel course and use the coupon code queen you will get $10 off and you will get my all access pass, which is all past recorded classes for your topic, by the way. Okay, so I just put this link in the chat box. This is where you can pretty much get everything of mine. Um, if you need a study buddy session now, Angela is fantastic at helping you memorize the things you need to memorize and pumping you up for passing the exam. She is a little fierce about it and it, and, and it either works for you or doesn't, but man, is she amazing at getting you to remember the things you need to remember. If you wanna book a session with her, you just click this link, go to the calendar link, 
um, and you're able to book a session with her. She does um, one-on-ones for one hour at $59, um, free game nights every Sunday. You can get a four-hour session with her, which I totally recommend if you're going to go right before your exam, like the day before or two days before your exam, you want to make sure you lock in everything. You could do a four-hour session with her for $199. Then she has um, auto umbrella classes, dwelling, and general classes available for $29. Those are group classes. So that's where you can do that. Um, then this is where I have all my stuff. So um, it's not really organized right now. I'm working on it. <laughs> but I have um, my all access is basically every piece of recording, every class that I have taught on that topic, all available in one bundle. I have the health bundle, the life bundle, the life and health bundle, the property and casualty bundle. And then I put all life and health and property casualty into one. So if you know you're gonna do all four exams, instead of paying 111 plus 111, you can pay 155 and get all, all the bundles together. Then I sell things separately. I have, um, if you need help with general insurance, I have a, an audio that it's not a class, it's an audio of me talking and explaining the material. I have a memorization one where not only do I explain it, but then I repeat a definition three times to lock it into your brain. Um, I got some health class, health class, life, life. Here is the state law one. Let me give you guys the link to that one directly. So state law is pretty important. Now with that class, um, it is state specific. Everyone's numbers are different, but I tell you which numbers to look at. How long is your license good for? How many continuing education hours do you need? How often does the, the director do examinations? And then I just explain that chapter in general so it makes a lot more sense. So that's the law chapter. Highly recommend that for anybody. And it is included in the all access, right? Um, then I've got uh, more life, more health, whatever. Life, life. Um, this is a great class. This one's five hours. I did general like we just did. I went into homeowners. I also did some math. Um, and then I have PNC basics memorization. This class is now free on YouTube. In fact, I'm probably gonna release one of these classes on YouTube since this class will replace one of my other classes. Um, this uh, There's a PNC home and insurance. That one's now free on YouTube too. Um, so yeah, this is where you can get all of my classes. So I will be including um, uh, home and auto in this. I'll send you the link for that one because you guys, um, yeah. Oh, and then if you did want to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, like you're like, I just want to know that I will pass this exam the first time. I want someone to tell me what exactly I need to study, how I need to study. I want to be able to ask Melissa questions as I'm studying throughout the day. That's what the royal treatment is for. So you literally have, you know, I mean, of course, you know, during the business days or business hour, or if I'm sleeping, I'm not going to answer you <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. But we can't call you at midnight or one o'clock in the morning. I won't answer. It actually depends on where I'm at and what the time zone is, right? Um, but anyway, if you want to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, knowing that, I mean, as of right now, it is a 100% first time pass. So anybody who has worked with me on my royal treatment has passed their exam the first time, every time. 
every client so far. Um, so I'm going to send you the link for that. One. That link is not on my um, website on that website because I took it off because last month August was my birthday, so I took the month of August kind of off in terms of working with one. Happy birthday! Thank you. Happy belated birthday. You're welcome. Thank. Okay, and then so there's the link to get the um, to get to buy me. So you buy me. I'm your teacher. I'm your tutor in your pocket. We will. I'll tell you exactly what to do um with your quizzes your testing whatever we will meet a few times um you you have the ability to message me um throughout the day i do audio messages so i use either telegram or boxer you say hey i need help with this or can you explain replacement costs to me again or or i don't know what to do so even if you were like i don't know what it is i need to know i don't know what it is i need to ask you you can even you know say that um so that that you know whatever you have the ability to talk to me with that um savannah i oh and you don't need to if you're in south carolina you don't need to worry about um commercial you can pass the exam by focusing on general pc basics home auto dwelling state law and then what you learn in home and auto is going to um help you with commercial anyway so naturally through studying home and dwelling, you will get questions correct for commercial. Um, Steve, none of the code and ethics. So I already answered, I answered that question. Your, the code and ethics is a 12 hour requirement that you read it. It's not part of the exam. Um, Richie, I'm gonna buy your life and health course as a refresher. Oh, perfect, cool. Um, that's awesome. It, I, it's, it's um, Yes, it's definitely a refresher of the stuff on the exam, but just keep in mind, I focus on the exam, not necessarily selling insurance. Um, but the way that I do talk does help you communicate with customers a lot more when, especially with life and health. Um, if I purchase the $22 state law, do I have access right away? Yes, it's not, it's a recording. So as soon as you buy the state law class, you will get a download, you download it. It's a video file that you will own forever and you could just immediately watch it. Everything I have is a download. There's no time limit on my stuff. So you have access to everything. Um, my exam is Saturday. Any chance I will get this video and email? You are sending it before then. Um, yeah, I should because that would be about 48 hours. So as soon as this, I got to end the meeting. In fact, I'm going to end the recording right now because, well, unless anybody has a question. I go, it's weird about recording. I'm like, people are going to watch this later. And it's like they're watching, I don't know, whatever. Um, Yes, as soon as the Zoom meeting updates and then I get it uploaded, I'm actually making it a lot faster now because instead of uploading the entire movie file to Podia, I just make it as a private unlisted YouTube link. So it should actually go a little bit faster. Um, but I, I, I'm gonna be traveling for the next couple of days. We gotta go to Illinois because uh, my boo is getting a uh, surgery. Um, so we need to head down there. We're in Michigan right now, but um, I'll be traveling for a few days. So my goal is to get you this recording ASAP so that I don't have to hop back on to my computer. <clears throat> okay, any other questions? Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, and if all of you, if you guys don't mind, um, or ever it is that you feel, if you can leave a review on my Google page for the class itself, um, or if you wanna come back and leave the review when you pass your exam, whatever it is you wanna do, it really, really helps me out, helps me get out there. Um, and um, at some point, I also wanna be working for insurance companies. I need I need those reviews. So I just shared um, the link for- You get a 100. Uh, 
Definitely a 100. <laughs> oh, thank you. I do have. <laughs> Where's have, the link? I'm a five-star queen. I've only got five stars, so I love okay. it. Okay. Where's the link at? How do I get to that? I just put the link in the chat box. But if you were to just do, if you were to go to Google Maps, for instance, and you type in insurance exam queen, you should be able to find <laughs> and leave a review that way as well. All right, Michelle, we got to get you your notes. Thank you. Oh. All right. Okay. So Michelle, I'm waiting on a note too. <laughs> okay. All right. So Michelle and whoever is waiting for the note, do you see the link in the chat? Do you see the chat box? Well, I had it up. Hold on, just a moment. So in the bottom of, are you recording? Oh, I am. Let me turn that off. Bye. <laughs>